Inside the ERP Software Cartel, 10 Digital Transformation Questions for CIOs, and a Digital Strategy Case Study with the U.S. Army. Those are just a few of the topics we're going to cover today in episode number 140 of Transformation Ground Control. This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 140. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm your host today and also the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. We're an independent consulting firm that helps clients throughout the world reach their third stage of digital transformation success. And you can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on audio podcast platforms throughout the world. You can also go to transformationgroundcontrol.com to see all the past episodes and check out weekly updates to the podcast as well. Uh, You can also find the show streaming to YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. But of course, just go to transformationgroundcontrol.com to see an aggregate of all the platforms where we're streaming to every week. And this is the podcast that has everything to do with digital strategy, including the people, process, technology sides of change. So looking forward to an action-packed episode here with you today. Uh, First of all, we're going to get into some questions from the audience. We're going to pull a few of those questions from uh, social media questions that we've received recently on my various channels there. We're also going to get into a couple of hot topics. One is the uh, 10, digital transformation, 10 digital transformation questions for CIOs, and the other is digital strategy case study with the U.S. Army. So we're going to talk about uh, a new direction in sort of a, a digital strategy that's been set by a large government uh, organization in the United States, uh, which is the U.S. Army. Uh, so we'll talk about what their strategy is and uh, some of the, the good, the bad, the ugly of uh, where they're headed there with their strategy. And then later in the show, we're going to have Sebastian from Rimini Street, Sebastian Grady, uh, who is the president of Rimini Street. He will be on the show with me talking about inside the ERP software cartel. So we're going to pull back the curtain and talk about what some of the the nuances of working with big ERP vendors and in sort of a rigged ERP ecosystem, uh, what the things are to be aware of and what you can do to navigate some of those challenges. So we'll uh, be excited for that conversation later today. And then last but not least, we'll have Greg Benton on the show. Uh, who is part of the third stage consulting team. And we're going to play you a clip of an interview we did recently where we talk about whether or not traditional ERP software as we know it is dying. And if so, what are the alternatives that might be chipping away at the traditional ERP software space? So be sure to stick around for that. So great action-packed show for you here today. But before we get to those guests and the other segments here today, I want to get to some uh, audience questions here that we we have from Uh, primarily my YouTube channel. I'm pulling a lot of questions here today in today's episode from from YouTube. And uh, some great questions have come in here and great comments, uh, as always. Uh, This first question slash comment, which I want to respond to, is from a video I posted uh, about Oracle NetSuite ERP implementation challenges. Um, And as you may know, if you ever listen to this podcast or if you follow any of my stuff, any of my company stuff with Third Stage Consulting, 
because we're independent and technology agnostic, we have the luxury of calling things out as we see them in the industry. We're not here to sell software or sugarcoat anything. So one thing we do is we'll state facts, challenges and risks and that sort of thing. And software vendors sometimes don't like that. And people in the in the ERP software space sometimes don't like that. And uh, I'm going to start with a, a negative comment here from someone who wasn't thrilled with my video, who did not like the video. And the comment is, this guy is trying to downgrade Oracle while promoting his shop. Oracle NetSuite is very flexible and customizable. Now, Oracle will not let you do shady stuff or will not work with companies when the nature of the business is questionable. And I really want to hone in on this because there's a lot in that comment that I'm not going to focus on the, the, the negative uh, disagreement necessarily, but I am going to focus on some, some flawed thinking that I think is a problem in the industry. Um, first of all, just to set some context, Oracle, the Oracle NetSuite video I put out was um, basically calling out some of the risks that you should be aware of with Oracle NetSuite. I think a lot of times small and mid-market companies, the ones that are most likely to implement NetSuite, they tend to fall into the trap of going in with blinders on or not fully understanding uh, what the risks are. And so they've got these blind spots um, because they, they don't do this every day and they're not, they're not used to going through ERP implementations. But one of the things I call out in that video is that Oracle NetSuite is not as flexible as other products in the marketplace. And I stand by that very strongly. Um, and I will strongly disagree with the comment that Oracle NetSuite is very flexible and customizable. That is absolutely something I completely disagree with. Um, it is more flexible now than it was certainly 10 or 20 years ago, uh, Oracle NetSuite. But when you compare NetSuite to other products in the marketplace, uh, particularly if you look at open source ERP or even best of breed solutions, even if you look at other tier two uh, sorts of ERP systems um, like Epicor and Infor and, and some of these other solutions, I think what you'll find is that Oracle NetSuite is not as flexible as those solutions. Now you could say it's flexible enough for it gives you enough of a tool set. That's a totally different story and that may be true for your organization. And certainly if the off the shelf functionality of NetSuite fits your business really well, the flexibility becomes somewhat of a moot point, right? Flexibility is really the, the main issue with flexibility is if it doesn't fit your business, then what do you do to fix it or change the software? And that's where things get tricky for a lot of organizations. So I think, you know, it's all relatively speaking. Now, this person in their defense may think that Oracle NetSuite is flexible enough. And like I said, that that may be true for your organization, but it's not true for all organizations. Um, so the, the other thing I want to talk about, though, is this last comment. I think there's a lot in the last sentence here where he says, now Oracle will not let you do shady stuff or will not work with companies when the nature of the business is questionable. And I think, you know, this is a this is a really interesting comment because it really, in my opinion, it really strikes at the heart of one of the biggest problems in the ERP software industry is this mindset of a lot of us in the in the ERP space, especially on the technical side of things. We tend to have a lot of times a mindset that the technology knows all. Our technology is best practice. Our technology is the way your business should work. And if you don't adapt to those quote unquote best practices or the off the shelf software, then something's wrong with you. You're the problem. And I think that is super arrogant. And I think that is something that may not be the intent of this comment, by the way. So I'm not suggesting that this person is arrogant, but there is an arrogance in the ERP software space that I think is extremely misleading and challenging for a lot of organizations. Um, in, in this comment here, for example, Oracle will not let you do shady stuff or will not work with companies when the nature of the business is questionable. I think that's a way of saying that there's limits to the flexibility. I think you're acknowledging that the software can't be changed to do certain things. And if your business does certain things that the software can't do, therefore it must be shady. 
that's the way I interpret the question. But of course, correct me if I'm wrong or if, if I'm misinterpreting your, your comment, if, if you're the one that, that left this comment. But I think it's really worth noting that, um, you know, every organization has two types of change, right? They have the, they have the um, or I should say two different types of uh, uh, challenges to change. One is going to be the business processes that are broken, that are inefficient, that could really leverage new technologies to make them better. That's one bucket. But then there's another uh, type of change or process changes where there's a misalignment with the software and you have to figure out what you're going to do about it. And it could be that you have certain business processes that are unique to you. It's unique to your competitive advantage. Uh, it gives you a leg up against competition and a standard off-the-shelf ERP system like NetSuite may not be able to do that. So the question is, do you just say, okay, well, we must change or else we're the problem. And so we'll defer to what the software does or doesn't do. And by definition, now you're watering down your competitive advantage. Or do you say, okay, we're either going to customize the software if we can, or if we can't, or if that's too risky, then we'll go find a, a off-the-shelf solution or a, or a best-of-breed solution that we can bolt on. So I think that's the way to look at it: is how do we how do we find that right balance between wanting to leverage the functionality of off-the-shelf software, but not diluting and watering down and undermining a competitive advantage that we've built over the years. Now, what you don't want to do is assume that any sort of change that you're not willing to accept or any sort of software functionality that your organization is not willing to accept, you don't want to assume that all those resistance to changes or those pushbacks on the core functionality is necessarily a negative thing or a positive thing. I mean, there's going to be cases where it's just pure resistance to change and your people don't want to change, but they, if they could change, then the software will work fine. But there are going to be certain processes where there's just a mismatch between the software and your processes and you need to figure out how you're going to manage that that challenge so resistance to change or a misalignment between business processes and software isn't always a bad thing you just have to figure out how you're going to navigate navigate that so um, thank you for the comment um, on the the oracle netsuite video and by the way um, this video that uh, this person is referring to was about oracle netsuite but i've also put out videos for other about other software vendors that challenge the same thing. I have one about SAP, why you shouldn't implement SAP, why you shouldn't implement Oracle Fusion. So I have a series of videos where I talk about basically the dark side, the risks of that product. And the reality is I'm, there's plenty of our clients that are implementing NetSuite, plenty of them that are implementing SAP and Oracle. We're not suggesting don't do it, but we do suggest that you look at the reasons why maybe you wouldn't want to and what ask yourselves what would cause us a problem if we were to implement the solution not because it necessarily changes your mind, but because it, it opens your mind to the risks so that you can manage those better. So that's um, one way to think about it. So thank you for your, your comments there. Um, another uh, question here that, that is, uh, we, we're talking about Oracle NetSuite, but shifting gears and talking about uh, SAP, this comment was um, on a video on my YouTube channel about SAP implementation projects. And this person asked on YouTube, is there any specific change between ECC and HANA? I've been using ECC for three to four years. I never used HANA. And I'd say that, yes, there's a big change between ECC and HANA. They're, they're two very different platforms. They're both SAP still. They're both developed by SAP, but they're totally different architectures. Um, the HANA platform is sort of a, a totally different database structure. So ECC and, and other legacy SAP products were dependent on Oracle databases, whereas HANA's built on the HANA database, S4 HANA is built on the HANA database, which is an entirely new database or, or new newer to SAP um, to replace Oracle databases. But it's not just the database structure, which is which is intended to be more of a real-time data processing, and, and I won't get into the details of how HANA 
um, the HANA database structure is more efficient, but it does take up less computing power and it can be a lot faster than the old ECC model. So that's a, a big part of it is just having more real-time access to analytics and whatnot. Um, but the bigger change, the more material change that's probably more noticeable to the average organization is just going to be um, the functionality and the product itself is a complete rewrite. And so because it's a cloud-based solution and they're really trying to push everyone to either a private or public cloud version of S4 HANA, that's different software than ECC. So they've tried to replicate a lot of that functionality and bring a lot of that functionality over from ECC. They haven't finished doing that. And there's, as a result, a lot of gaps in S4 HANA when you compare it to ECC, because simply because ECC has been around for so long, they've had decades of R&D and innovation and improvements, enhancements, and broadening the product, all that stuff. Whereas now with S4 HANA, they've only had several years now. It's been several years, but they haven't had decades like they have with, with ECC to, to get caught up on that. Having said that, HANA also has things that ECC does not have. So on one hand, there are gaps in the functionality and the maturity of HANA when you look at some of the core I'll call it the more advanced functions like, uh, you know, advanced planning, demand planning, uh, manufacturing, execution, things like that. That's where a lot of our clients are seeing gaps with us for HANA. But on the flip side, they're seeing some new capabilities that were never available in ECC or, or were just not very mature in ECC. Things like uh, better analytics and more artificial intelligence and machine learning, things that are still not fully developed and they're still emerging, they're still being developed as we speak, but they're further along than it ever was with ECC. So it's sort of a double-edged sword. You're getting some new functionality and new capabilities with S4 HANA, but you're also missing, in many cases, some core functionality and, and uh, robust functionality and workflows that you would have um, out of the box with ECC. So you, I think the key here is really, if you're going to move to uh, S4 HANA, either as a, as a project team member or consultant or as an organization that's looking at S4 HANA, that's back to the previous uh, video or the previous comment about uh, Oracle NetSuite. Same goes for S4 HANA or any other product. Just poke holes in it. Look for those weaknesses. Look for those gaps. And if you aren't finding them, that means you aren't looking hard enough because every system has deficiencies and gaps as it relates to your business needs. So that's something that's very important that, that we highly recommend that organizations do. So um, great questions. Really appreciate the, the feedback. And, and, and I was, as always, either in this podcast or other videos that you might see out on YouTube, LinkedIn, or wherever you, you're watching our content, I'd uh, love to hear your comments, and we'd love to pull those comments for this show. So thank you for, for providing those comments. And please keep, keep the comments and questions coming, too. So th these are great, great, uh, great points of discussion here today. So we're going to shift gears here in a moment, uh, take a quick break, and we're going to get to some hot topics. We're going to talk about 10 digital transformation questions for CIOs, and then we're going to get into a digital strategy case study um, as it relates to the U.S. Army. And then after that hot topic segment, we're going to get to our first guest, Sebastian Grady from Rimini Street. He's the president of Rimini Street, and uh, he's going to take us inside the ERP software cartel. We're going to talk about the, the software cartel and what some of your options are to fight back and to really take control of your digital transformations, which a, a lot of organizations, unfortunately, have lost control of their transformations or are deferring too much to what the software vendors are telling them they need to do. So we're going to give you sort of that tech agnostic view of what you can be doing to navigate some of those challenges. And then last but not least, we'll talk about whether or not ERP software is dying with Greg Benton from the third stage consulting team. Uh, we'll talk about what some of the alternatives are to ERP software as we know it and uh, what we see the future of ERP software doing and how we see it evolving. So be sure to stick around for that. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. Stick around. Could you whisper in my ear the things you want to feel?
interested in working for a company that truly values your unique skills and experience? Here at Third Stage, we don't hire based on resumes alone. We look at the full candidate, experience, and willingness to provide excellent service for our clients. Within a technology independent and agnostic consulting firm, you have the opportunity to learn across industries with a diverse group of clients. Our consultants also have the opportunity to diversify their portfolio and learn across technology systems. If you're interested in joining a high growth entrepreneurial organization, please reach out to us at work at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 140. My name is Eric Kimberling. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. Check out the website there. And at transformationgroundcontrol.com, you can find uh, all the video versions of past episodes as well as audio-only versions. It'll also give you links to Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, Google, wherever you listen to podcasts, it'll, you'll get links uh, to take you there. So it's sort of an aggregate website of where all the places you can listen to or watch Transformation Ground Control. So thank you for being here today. Uh, Want to get into a couple of hot topics here today. One is uh, digital transformation questions every CIO must answer. I'm going to run through these pretty quickly and dive into a couple of them. But this is a super interesting article from CIO Magazine. Uh, this this uh, article was just published not too long ago and uh, just in the last uh, week or so. And uh, it's a really interesting article. If you get a chance to read it, it's a great one. Um, it talks about, first of all, how 41% of digital transformation initiatives have failed to achieve their desired outcomes. Um, I've, I think that number is pretty low. I think it, the number is actually a lot higher um, unless they're not counting the failures, the ones that have completely failed and pulled the plug on their projects, which that number is in and of itself is a pretty big number, um, especially in recent years with all the forced upgrades and whatnot. And by the way, we're going to get into the whole forced upgrade uh, topic and thread of conversation with our next guest right after this, this segment here uh, with Sebastian from Mini Street when we talk about the ERP software cartel. But point being, uh, a material number of digital transformations fail. I've seen metrics that are as high as 85%. So let's call it somewhere between 40 and 80% of um, digital transformations fail to achieve their desired outcomes or completely fail to where they don't get to go live. Um, so this article dives into, you know, the 10 things that you should be aware of and the 10 things you should ask yourself in order to uh, be successful. And one of the first questions or the first question they list here is, is this initiative about optimization or is it about growth and disruption? And really, I won't read word for you, word for word what the article says, but essentially what they're saying is you have to have a clear vision of what it is you're trying to accomplish and make sure you align your technology initiatives with that. So if you're trying to um, optimize and become more efficient and lower your cost structure. That's just a different digital strategy, a different roadmap than if you're trying to grow and disrupt your business and disrupt the status quo. Not to say that they're not they're they're mutually ex exclusive. You can do a bit of both, but you have to have a clear vision of what it is you're trying to accomplish and what those priorities are. Um, and you're gonna the answer to that question is going to take you down a different path of what types of technology you deploy how quickly you deploy it, your overall strategy for deploying it, how you improve your processes to align with those, those uh, technologies and certainly the organizational change components and how you change your people and your organization itself uh, as well. A second question is, am I using data to drive my transformation strategy? So great point and great question. A lot of organizations wonder why they aren't able to take advantage of artificial intelligence or predictive analytics or advanced business intelligence and reporting capabilities. 
And part of the reason is, is because they haven't focused enough on uh, data and cleaning up data and really starting that initiative and that work stream early in the process. In fact, this article talks about how only 5% of enterprises currently have are implementing a live data approach. So it's, it's uh, important to, to focus on data as well. Another, uh, a third thing that a CIO needs to know, according to this article, is my strategy organized around problems to solve or around technologies? And what they're suggesting here is you should be focused on problems, not just getting enamored with technologies or implementing to a certain vendor just because you're sold a vision or whatever the case may be. It needs to be more focused on what it is you're trying to accomplish, whether it's growth or efficiency gains or better customer experience or whatever it is you're, you're trying to accomplish. So making sure that you have a clear vision there. Uh, fourth thing is, am I engaging people on the front lines to formulate the digital transformation plans? So they're making a case for the value of involving more than just the CIO or the technology group, but involving other key leaders and stakeholders within the business. Uh, the fifth on the list is, am I identifying and using the right business metrics to measure progress? It's a great point. A lot of companies don't measure progress at all, let alone have the right metrics to, to do it. So the key here is to recognize, you know, what is acceptable risk and what is acceptable uh, or what are the, the main priorities in terms of what you uh, need to accomplish in terms of the implementation itself, whether it's being on time, on budget, or delivering business value, or whatever the case may be. And related to that would be, do I have a digital transformation budget and completion timeline? Um, I think that one's pretty straightforward. If you don't, you should have one. Uh, so that's a, a oversimplified uh, summary of what, what this article is saying. Uh, seventh on the list is, is transformation company-wide? So in other words, are we looking at one part or one silo of the organization, or are we looking at, at the entire enterprise? This article is making a really strong case for looking at the transformation company-wide. I would push back on that a little bit and say it, it depends on what it is you're trying to accomplish. I mean, it could be that we're trying to grow top-line revenue growth. Therefore, for example, we're going to deploy a CRM system and focus on sales force automation for our sales force. Um, that's that's okay. It's okay if you do that. You certainly want to look at what the upstream and downstream implications of that transformation are. But it could be that that is such a high priority that you're going to go tackle that one problem first rather than worrying about end-to-end -end business processes and a, and a company-wide transformation. For some organizations, it is the opposite, and this point is very relevant to them where they should be looking at company-wide transformations. Uh, it depends on what your strategy is and what your priorities are and what's your, what your risk tolerance is, what your budget is, all that good stuff. Uh, eighth, is all my talent ready, and am I making the right moves on this front? Uh, this is a great point where technology oftentimes takes off and, and leaves without us. It, it leaves without the team being in place. We're already starting the deployment. We're hiring consultants. We're bringing in the vendors and the technical implementers to deploy technology, but yet we haven't figured out um, how we're going to support that project ourselves with internal resources. And you need a minimum level of internal involvement. In fact, I would suggest you want to stop the project or, or wait to start the project until you have a minimum amount of internal support on the project, because otherwise you're going to lose total control of the project before it ever starts. And your system integrators, your software vendors, your technical implementers, and outside consultants are going to take over the project, and you're not going to have your fingerprints on the project, which is a, a recipe for disaster if you don't do that. Uh, number nine, how much time do I have to be successful? This is really important because too often in today's day and age, organizations are on these artificially compressed timelines because their software vendors are sunsetting products and they are 
pushing them into a certain time frame that doesn't make sense for them as an organization. So in other words, if a vendor is telling you they're going to cut off support in two years from now on your legacy product, that doesn't mean you need to implement and be done implementing in two years. But yet a lot of organizations feel as though they need to implement two years. Now, if you think about it, your software vendors would love for you to do it in two years or whatever the number is, because that means they're going to make more money sooner. So, of course, they're going to push you because of economic incentive. They're going to push you to a faster, more aggressive time frame that may or may not make sense for your organization. So it's really important that you dial that in and understand based on your risk tolerance, your culture, your magnitude of change, what strategies you're deploying from a technical perspective. All those things factor into or should factor into what your overall duration is. So you want to make sure you... Um, you, you work off your own time frame. And we're going to talk more about that, by the way, when we get into our, our first guest here in just a minute. Uh, we'll talk about um, you know, the, the tech cartel and how they try to force you into these aggressive timelines that are, that are recipes for disaster. And then 10th, last but not least, they talk about what's holding up digital transformation. So that's, this is a super interesting um, point in that you want to understand where the pushback is and what the obstacles are to getting started. If it's a you know, an IT group that's pretty well entrenched in a legacy set of technologies, then you just want to understand that and figure out what's a change strategy to overcome that and what do we need to do to navigate that. If it's that the, you know, the, the business leadership has com- conflicting priorities that they put on the table in front of uh, the, the organization, then you need to figure out where does this project fit and how does that affect, based on that priority, the prioritization of this project, how does that affect our timeline, our ability to commit resources and whatnot? So really important uh, thing to look at there as far as what's holding up digital transformation. So great article, CIO Magazine, um, top 10 things or 10 things that every CIO should know um, before starting a digital transformation. So uh, be sure to check out that article if you haven't seen it already. Now, shifting gears a little bit, a second hot topic I want to get to here today is uh, U.S. Army, uh, obviously a very large government organization, military branch within the U.S. government, um, has decided to uh, take a, a evolving approach to their digital transformation. And they're looking at multi- uh, combining multiple ERP systems into a single platform. And uh, they're basing this platform on uh, SAP. So they've been, U.S. Army has been implementing SAP for some time now, and they're pretty well invested in SAP. And they recently chose three companies, Accenture, IBM, and Groundswell. Um, I'm not sure who Groundswell is, but it's someone that they chose as a phase one of the project, which is basically a a prototype. They want each of these organizations, each of these three companies to sort of compete to create a prototype based on SAP of how their solution could solve the needs of the U.S. Army. And so what they're going to do after that, I think it's an eight-month duration, after that eight-month prototype pilot period, um, then they'll award a five-year contract to whoever kind of wins out that that entire competition. So it's kind of an interesting approach because, you know, they're building out prototypes, they're forcing these these potential partners to prove and demonstrate how they would build the system and sort of the vision for how they build technology to support the, the, the Army. Um, but I'm going to pull out a couple things that are, you know, controversial, I'd say, or maybe worth discussing. Um, but the idea here like a lot of organizations, the, the leadership here, according to the article, leadership within the U.S. Army has, has designated a couple parameters from the project. One is they want to be use commercial off the shelf as, as much as possible and make it custom to the military as little as possible. That's one thing. And the other thing is they don't want a big bang approach. They want more of they, they call it an agile approach. 
Um, so they sent um, all the requirements that they had for the for the technology to the um, to the three prototype winners, if you want to call it the, the three companies providing the the sample prototypes of the technology. They gave them all their business requirements and are asking these three companies to build their prototype based on those requirements. So that, by definition, in some ways, is a is a waterfall approach. They've said they want to avoid waterfall, but I think what they're doing, I think they're confusing agile versus waterfall. They're confusing that debate with big bang versus phase rollout. It sounds like what they're advocating is a phase rollout of a solution that was built or designed based on waterfall principles. So it sounds a little bit more hybrid-ish than what they're saying in the article, but that's my interpretation, not being directly involved with this project at all, just basing it, basing it on public information here. So that's one thing that I think is worth noting, just sort of a discussion point or food for thought as you go through a transformation is there's two different conversations or decisions you need to make. Are we taking agile versus waterfall or are we doing some sort of a hybrid in terms of how we design and deploy software? And then when it comes to strictly the deployment, you also have the decision on, do we take more of a big brain, big bang approach or more of a, a phase approach? And those are, you know, two different strategies that work in some cases and, and are appropriate for some customers. And then in other cases, you know, another customer or client might have a totally different answer. So those are a few things to think about, but um, really interesting approach they're taking here because they are, um, you've got this large government military organization that's really trying to embrace agile and embrace, um, you know, using off the shelf software as much as possible. Now, one thing that really jumped out at me is that if they're going to do this, if they're going to base their future business operations on SAP functionality, and they're going to try to customize as little as possible, that's okay. But what I'm wondering, and they don't mention this in the article, but what I'm wondering is if they understand how difficult that change is going to be for their people and their processes. And if they're prepared to invest the efforts and the heartburn and the money that goes into ensuring that people uh, are able to change and the processes in the organization are able to change. So a couple of things to keep in mind there. Um, and that's sort of a TBD. We'll see how this, how this project unfolds, but super interesting case study um, that was just published a, uh, just a couple of weeks ago on a website called Washington technology. Um, and again, it's uh, this is a very U S North America centric case study, but I think it's something that is applicable to government, non-government sorts of organizations uh, throughout the world, private sector as well. Um, throughout the world, regardless, these are some of the questions you, you want to think about and ask um, as it relates to, to the project here. So be curious to see how that unfolds. That's certainly going to be one of the bigger digital transformations in the world, of course. So we'll, we'll keep an eye on that and see how that goes. So uh, great, great uh, hot topics for discussion here today. I hope you found them as interesting as I do. And speaking of interesting, I've got two really interesting guests coming up for you here today. Uh, first up is going to be Sebastian Grady, who's the president of Rumini Street. He's going to be up next talking about inside the ERP software cartel. And then later in the show, we'll have Greg Benton from Third Stage Consulting. He'll be talking about, is ERP software dying? So stick around. We're going to get to those two guests. But first, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. When I wake up, well, I know I'm going to be, I'm going to be the man who wakes up next to you. When I go out. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling with Third Stage Consulting and your host of Transformation Ground Control. I want to encourage you to read our Guide to Organizational Change Management. It's a free report or a free guide that we published. It's one that I actually wrote that talks about best practices and lessons learned as it relates to change management. So as you know, on this podcast, we cover a lot of stuff related to the human sides of change, organizational change management, including training, communications, org design, all kinds of stuff as it relates to 
change management. So if you're trying to learn more about change management or you're looking for more direction and ideas on how to get started on your change management strategy and your overall journey, be sure to check out this guide. You can read it by scanning the QR code on the screen in front of you or in the links below for this particular podcast episode. You can find a link to uh, take you to the page that will allow you to register to go ahead and download that and read it for free. So be sure to check it out. It's the Guide to Organizational Change Management uh, written by yours truly. I hope you enjoy it. Let me know what you think and hope you enjoy the rest of this episode. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 140. My name is Eric Kimberling. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com, so be sure to check out past episodes that you might have missed. And I'm excited for our next guest, our first-time guest here on Transformation Ground Control. This is uh, Sebastian Grady, who is the president of Remini Street. He's going to be on the show here talking about inside the ERP software cartel. And uh, Sebastian is someone that I've just recently gotten to know here in the industry, although I've known of his organization and of him for quite some time now. Um, they've been a, a, a strong player, a, a solid third-party independent player in the space for quite some time, and they've grown into a pretty big company now. And so I thought it'd be fun to have him on the show because what's really interesting about him, his company, and his background, who I'll, I'll let him explain a little bit more uh, clearly and in more detail here in a moment, but what I love about his company, Remini Street, is that they are independent and tech agnostic. So they're, they're focused on helping provide clients with third-party maintenance, um, but they're, giving it, they're doing so in a way that gives customers an alternative to what many think is a, a necessity to get maintenance through your software vendor. And what Remini Street has done and companies like Remini Street have done is they've created a, a sort of a third-party option and alternative for companies that are needing uh, some type of managed service or just general maintenance support for uh, their different uh, ERP vendors. So both he and I and our respective companies are untethered from the influences of software vendors, so we're able to have a pretty candid conversation here about uh, life inside the ERP software cartel. And most importantly, we wanted to share some insights as to what the cartel is and how you can overcome and navigate the software cartel. Um, so when you talk about big vendors like SAP and Oracle and Microsoft, they just have a huge amount of influence over people's perceptions. And oftentimes they create both intentionally and unintentionally, they create some biases and blind spots uh, in the market that can be extremely risky for organizations. So what we want to do today is talk about what it's like inside the cartel and what you're dealing with and what the minefields are that we're dealing with and how organizations can better overcome and navigate some of those challenges. So with all that being said, Sebastian, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Eric. Thanks for having me. Uh, we've myself and our company and uh, most importantly, many of our clients have uh, listened to a lot of your podcasts and YouTube videos and read your reports in the past, and we thought they're very informative. So I'm delighted to actually be on your show and uh, talk to this wonderful audience and see if we can have a great discussion. Absolutely. Yeah, glad to have you here today. And, um, you know, you and I have had, you know, you and I are part of what uh, I think you coined this term. So I'm going to steal it from you and pretend like it's mine, but it's actually your term. But you, when you and I have talked before, we've talked about how we're sort of the resistance. We're, we're the resistance within the ERP software space because we're both independent and fairly agnostic and we're not part of the machine. But tell us a little bit about Remini Street. Who are you guys and how are you part of the resistance uh, within the space here? Yeah, sure. No problem. So Remini Street, uh, our primary business is to provide third-party support for SAP and Oracle software. Our pricing model is really simple. 
we're 50% off of your annual maintenance bill that you currently pay with SAP and Oracle. And you typically discontinue or stop your maintenance with SAP and Oracle and replace it with Romini Street when you come to us. Now, in the last few years, our clients have been asking us to provide more of what I'll call a whole product, as Jeffrey Moore described in his 1991 book that I know you're a big fan of, Crossing the Chasm, which was our Bible when I was at a company called PeopleSoft from 1993 to 2000. Our whole management team read that book. We had Jeffrey Moore in all the time to talk to us. And this was back in the older days. Um, we were one of the first companies at PeopleSoft to do client server software, and we were really excited about this. So taking that concept of the whole product in Jeffrey Moore's book, uh, at Ramini Street, we added application management services and consulting around SAP and Oracle products, and also application management services for Salesforce. We also have many security products and services, as well as interop interoperability products and services, and monitoring solutions, which we believe provide the whole ERP product for our clients. And this is really important because those other things that we've added around our core product are growing pretty fast. Mm. Now, we're a $410 million company and our, our annual revenue run rate, and that's grown from 30 million when I joined the company 12 years ago as the president. Mm. Uh, we started Ramini Street in 2005, supporting Siebel and JD Edwards and PeopleSoft applications. And then we added Oracle Database and Middleware and SAP and others. And Oracle Database and Middleware and SAP are the majority of our revenue because it's the largest target addressable market. You've got many more customers running those applications and databases than you do JD Edwards, PeopleSoft and Siebel these days. Now, what I'm most proud of, for instance, is in just the last quarter, we closed nearly 9,000 support cases. We delivered 7,000 tax, legal, and regulatory updates across 22 countries. And we received an average client satisfaction rating on support delivery of more than 4.9 on a scale of one to five, where five is the highest we could get. And mm -hmm. I started my career at Accenture, which was Anderson Consulting back in the day, and we rated everything. And if we could get like a 4.5 out of five, that was great. So I'm really uh, grateful that we get a 4.9 rating from our clients. And our clients provide survey responses on about 30, 35% of the cases that we solve, which is kind of an unheard of response rate uh, in the industry as well. Interesting. That's great. And that's, that's a lot of growth, you know, going from 30 million to 400 plus in your, in your 12 years there. So I guess it begs the first question about Remini and, and sort of setting the stage for this whole conversation. So essentially what you guys do is you provide third-party support. And I think a lot of buyers, a lot of enterprise software buyers assume that when you go buy software, you have to use the, the vendor, right? You have to use SAP or Oracle or Salesforce or whoever to provide that support. But you guys have proven and created a model that says, well, hey, hold on, there, there, are, there are alternatives to that vendor direct support. Is that a fair summary of what you guys do is, is third-party independent support? Yeah. Yeah. And we're not the only ones that do it. And there are companies like us that do it uh, for IBM and do it for Microsoft. So there's a big third-party support industry uh, that kind of spawned from the third-party hardware industry. Hmm. So the third-party hardware support industry has been around for longer 
than the software support industry where you could buy, you know, used equipment from Cisco or IBM or other. And there was a lot of companies that did that. But the third party support industry um, is is newer, but we've been around since 2005. Okay, gotcha. And we're the biggest in this space. So I've got to ask before I get into my real questions here, what what do the big ERP vendors like SAP, Oracle, Salesforce, some of the ones you mentioned here, what do they think of you guys? Do they do they welcome the alternatives in the market here? Are you a threat? Are you a problem? What how do you what's the perception? Well, it's a, of you? Well, it's a tough thing. Um, I think you know if and I've worked for I've worked for some companies where we we really owned a market. We were kind of a, a monopoly, and customers had no choice. And, you know, when you're in a situation like that, you can rest on your laurels and you can mm -hmm. kind of um, not focus as much. So I think by having competition in any space, it keeps the incumbent sharp. Uh, it keeps us sharp. And most importantly, it provides choice for the clients. Now, I think in some ways, look, SAP and Oracle make a lot of money on their annual maintenance with massive profit margins over 90%. So from that perspective, they don't like anybody uh, undercutting or uh, providing maintenance for a lesser price than they do and essentially taking uh, some of their customers away from them. Uh, but if these customers would have moved to another product line, maybe a positive note is we keep them on the Oracle and SAP product line because we really love Oracle and SAP products. They're, they're great products. Um, it's just that the support, a lot of customers question, am I getting my, my value, my money's worth um, in how much I'm paying for annual support versus what I'm getting um, for that? Right, right. Yeah, so you're giving an alternative and giving giving an option to to customers of these of these big uh, products. Um, so some may be wondering um, why is this topic for today? Why is it called inside the ERP software cartel? What is the ERP software cartel? I didn't know it existed or whatever. So yeah, yeah, I, I didn't make that term up, but um, let's talk about that for a little bit. So I, I've heard this term over the years, and I think I saw it published this cartel term regarding ERP software vendors for the first time in a report in 2018. Hmm. It, my basic understanding about it is if you think about the whole ERP ecosystem, the massive amount of money that's made in the ERP ecosystem is when customers have to do massive projects. So if you think about the systems integrators and the software vendors, they want you to constantly upgrade because that's where the majority of their revenue come from, where they're doing these really big projects. So for SAP, uh, there's a big move to want to migrate everybody from their flagship ECC6 product to S4HANA, which Eric, I know your, your company has a lot of expertise in that area as well. And that's the, that's the major revenue uh, in the ERP ecosystem. Now, this is the revenue that the software vendors and systems inter integrators primarily get. Um, and I think it creates this false sense of hype around constantly having to upgrade to purportedly get very valuable new features and functionality. Many customers question the ROI on these massive projects, and they are massive because sometimes the juice isn't worth the squeeze, as they say, and the value proposition does not justify the total cost of ownership. The problems further exacerbated when you look at the SAP and Oracle product support policies which are typically five years from general availability or GA date of the product, which causes forced upgrades just to stay supported. 
And these upgrades are very, very expensive. Yeah. Now, what about in, a, in the cloud environment with, with a lot of uh, you know, customers moving to public and private cloud as for HANA and uh, Oracle Fusion and whatnot? Is that, how, does that, how does your model fit within the cloud environment versus the legacy on-prem maintenance model? Yeah. Um, well, if you are truly subscription, if you're on a subscription-based version of these products where maintenance uh, and license fees are included, uh, there is no maintenance piece that we can be 50% of. But we do a lot of work around Salesforce.com where we're not competing with Salesforce.com. We're actually a partner and we do managed services around Salesforce.com. Now, if I, if I look at SAP, I believe Gartner published a report in Q1 of 23 that talked about the current state of affairs with customers moving from ECC6 to S4HANA. And I believe two thirds of the ECC6 customer base has not licensed any S4HANA as of that date. And 80% of the people that licensed S4HANA, they licensed the on-prem version. So the on-prem version does have a maintenance piece to it. And these are versions like, uh, uh, if I look at, I've got a sheet here, um, S4HANA 1511, which came out in November 2015, S4HANA 1610, which came out in October 16, S4HANA 1709, which came out in September of 2017. You see the, the numbering convention is basically the year and then the month. So 1709 is September of 2017. Then 1809 came out in September of 2018. Those, those one, two, three, four releases, uh, three of them, 1511, 1610, and 1709 are not supported today. Um, 1809 goes out of support at the end of 2023. So here you are, you've got, let's say, early adopter s hana customers that did the right thing by SAP and they upgraded to their s hana plat platform and they're already out of support all over again and they've got to do another massive upgrade. But what's complicating at this time is the upgrade to s hana if they took the on-prem version, SAP is putting a lot of pressure on companies to go to the private cloud or the public cloud version through their rise or grow model where they manage everything. Mm -hmm. um, and if they don't do that, they may not get access to things like generative AI, new features and functionality, which are still in their nascency. But there's been a lot of articles published recently from the SAP user group in Germany, the DSAG, where I, I've seen them very, very up in arms about this change, where all these customers did the right thing and they went live on S4HANA and now they have to face a massive rip and re replace upgrade again just to stay supported and just to get the new features. And it might be rip and replace if they have to go from the on-prem version to let's say the public cloud version. And the public cloud version, you cannot bring your customizations across, but on the private cloud version and the on-prem version, which is very similar software, you can bring your customizations across. So this is causing a lot of chaos in the SAP community today, Eric. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it seems like, you know, one way I describe the, not just the SAP community, but a lot of the ERP vendors are doing this, especially the bigger ones, uh, you know, they're basically, they're essentially holding a gun to their customer's head and saying, we're going to stop supporting this product. You need to move to product X by whatever date. 
And it sounds like what you guys are doing is you're, you're basically, in my opinion, this is my interpretation of where you guys can add value and, and companies like Remini Street can add value is you're sort of giving customers a way to push the gun away from their head and say, hold on a second. We've got options here. We can, if you're not willing to give us support, we've got a third party that can, and that gives us a little bit extra time to figure out what we're going to do to where we can upgrade our technology however we need to on our pace, not on the vendor's you know timeline. Is that is that how you see yourself, or is that part of the value you guys are providing? Yeah, yeah, it's a big part of the value. And in fact, we contractually guarantee in our contracts that we'll support any version of SAP or Oracle that you're running for 15 years from the day that you sign a contract with us. That's a one-way guarantee. You don't have to guarantee you're going to be with us for 15 years, but we say if you want to renew with us every year, we will guarantee that we'll support that version. And what it does is it just gives people time to take a huge deep breath and have some flexibility. And if I look at Oracle, and I've got a whole bunch of Oracle releases here, um, I've got a... Uh, this, I don't know if you've all ever seen this, but this is the Oracle lifetime support policy. You could print this off. It's for Oracle technology products like Oracle database. And if I look at the dates that Oracle database uh, versions were GA, we have a ton of clients that are on Oracle 11 G database or Oracle 12 C database. And not as many that are on Oracle 19C database, which is the current long-term release. Just to give you a frame of reference, how customers are running these old applications, and they're working perfectly fine. 11G came out GA in August 2007. Hmm. That's 16 years old. Uh, 12.1 Enterprise Edition came out GA in June of 2013. 12.2 came out in March of 2017. So let's take 12.2 as an example. It came out in March of 2017. It's a great release. Customers run it and love it. Uh, you know, 11G and 12C, we find that many customers that we talk to, 70, 80% of their thousands of database instances are on these releases like 11G and 12C. And they're not supported from Oracle. And by the way, if they're not supported from Oracle, in the same lifetime support policy, it says... What support does sustaining support is is what it's in. So it moves to it moves from primary support to extended support to sustaining support. Sustaining support does not include new updates, fixes, security alerts, data fixes, or critical patch updates. Many customers have no idea that that's the situation with sustaining support. So when they come to a company like Ramini Street, we will provide them security solutions. We've got a great advanced database security product. We will support the product for 15 years from the day you come with us, not the GA date. So a lot of customers buy themselves a lot of time instead of just doing these forced upgrades just to stay supported. We're here with Sebastian from Remini Street talking about inside the ERP software cartel. We've got a lot more to cover, but we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. Aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward thinking organizations 
through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 140. My name is Eric Kimberling. You can find new episodes of this episode or of the show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. And you can also go to transformationgroundcontrol.com to view past episodes of the show as well or listen to it wherever you, you listen to podcasts. So be sure to check out the website to get uh, your fix of this show for any episodes you may have missed in the past. And you can keep checking that website uh, week to week for new episodes as well. So we're here with Sebastian from Rumini Street talking about inside the ERP software cartel. Let's jump back into the conversation. A lot of what you guys are doing is is uh, is helping support the customization that that a lot of customers have developed and used as part of their secret sauce as an organization over the years. And I think that's a really interesting point, you know, in terms of when you look at sort of the maintenance of, of base, you know, the base code and sort of the vanilla off the shelf part of the software versus the custom code, which I know customization is a bad word. You're not, we're never supposed to do it, but the reality is organizations do do it and they have reasons for doing it in many cases. And you're giving an option to, to support that customization going forward. Is that, is that a fair statement? Yeah. If you look at, uh, I talked about those 9,000, nearly 9,000 cases we resolved last quarter. Uh, Roughly about 70% of those cases are on custom code, uh, mm. interfaces, integrations, performance tuning, how-to questions. And this, is, this also sheds some light on the vendor maintenance policy, which for the most part just supports the base code. Once the base code's been GA or in production for a couple years, does it really break? What causes software to break is you change the code or you change the data. So it sees a new condition that it's never been tested for before. And when you think about it, all the problems that you have, they're in interfaces and integrations with other products. They're in your custom code, like your SAP, SAP ABAP customizations and Z programs, or your Oracle database performance tuning. And this is where you really need to have extremely skilled people. So we've decided that we would not have level one, level two people on our help desk. We just have level three on our people on our help desk and we pay them a lot of money and they're 46 years old on average and they typically come from SAP or Oracle development or consulting or a systems integrator or a company that where they had deep skills 10 15 20 years on Oracle or SAP and our philosophy behind that is we want to fix it and we want to fix it right and we want to fix it once and we want to get to the root cause analysis so that problem doesn't happen again for us or the customer because it saves us money and it saves them money. I'm seeing some great questions in the chat too, by the way. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot coming in here. First of all, I want to thank everyone who who dropped in the chat where where you're joining from today. We've got people all over the world here from everywhere from UK to Denver to uh, UAE to Belgium, uh, Johannesburg. Um, so thank you for for everyone for joining wherever you are today. Um, so a lot of, a lot of good questions here. Um, we're stimulating some good, some good questions, but I have to ask this one because I think this is a really interesting question. I'd love to hear your perspective. And this is from Samir on LinkedIn and Samir says, hello, Eric, how are you? Samir from India. What is the future of SAP S4 
HANA TMS. And maybe I'll just chop off that last part and just say, what is the future of SAP S4 HANA? And, and you talk about the chaos in the industry and this transition to public and private cloud S4 HANA and the forced upgrades, all this stuff. What do you, if you sort of back up for a second and just look at the lay of the land of where we are, what do you, what do you think the future of the SAP ecosystem and the product itself is? Okay, so let's start with almost every company we talk to, they want to go cloud. They want to go digital, right? And it makes sense. And you look at all the incredible uh, things that are happening with AI. Uh, You know, AI, in my opinion, and machine learning might help cure cancer someday. I really honestly believe that. So I have a computer science degree from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute where I was taking AI classes 30 some years ago or 40 years ago, and it kind of went nowhere. And now it's all of a sudden the hottest thing in the world and everybody's AI and some of its hype and some of its reality, but it's a good thing. So people want to get there, right? But the other thing that's driving a lot of this move to the cloud for the software vendors is companies like Salesforce and Workday have proved that this model is very successful. And if you look at Salesforce that does CRM software and Workday that does uh, human capital management software, Companies that run that type of software essentially kind of do it the same way. You know, everybody does CRM the same way. Everybody does HCM the same way within reason. And that's a very broad general statement I made, I know, right? But they've been very successful and they have created true cloud SaaS multi-tenant software. Multi-tenant means that every company gets the same version of the software And they don't get to customize it. They have to take three or four releases a year, but they get to, quote unquote, configure it. So that's how they make it work for their company. So Mm -hmm. they don't they don't get too much of this technical debt. They don't have this problem of being on a release for 10, 15, 20 years. When you take a look at like SAP and Oracle, and I'll say SAP in particular, let's talk about Esfahana. SAP does manufacturing, distribution, supply chain, inventory software. They've got over 200 uh, industry, different modules and industry solutions. And the way a chemical manufacturer versus a discrete manufacturer does inventory and supply chain and distribution are completely different. So can you really kind of cookie cutter and build a product that everybody uses the same way and has no customizations, which is the promise of SAP's public cloud. But let's take a look at some statistics. So from this Gartner Q123 report, 67% of SAP ECC customers, approximately 23,400, have not purchased any S4HANA licenses yet. There's 21,500 S4HANA customers. 8,600 migrated from ECC, 12,900 were new clients that didn't run SAP before, which typically means that they're smaller companies and they're going with like a greenfield approach. Um, and that, so that's 60% of the new clients uh, on, S, on S4HANA. Only 1,000 are the S4HANA Cloud Public Edition, which is really, that would be the equivalent of the Salesforce or the Workday multi-tenant. But it's really hard to make that version work, is my understanding, Eric, for big customers. And I know you've got a lot of experience in this because because you work with a lot of these big customers. 2,900 are on rise. Uh, Private cloud edition, 82% of those related to businesses with annual revenue of less than $5 So there's some statistics of where we stand in Q123. I think Gartner publishes this report every quarter, so it's, it's good data. 
Um, right. Somebody asked me to repeat the figures on, on the numbers. Um, so I'm going to do that again. Uh, 67% of ECC customers have not purchased any Esfrahana licenses yet. Of the 21,500 Esfrahana customers, 8,600 migrated from ECC, but 12,900 are net new clients. A thousand only are on the Esfrahana Cloud Public Edition. Now, what's causing all this major change or, and, and problems in the SAP customer base is that SAP is starting, I, I'm hearing things like they may even charge you a 30% uplift if you want access to the AI features and you got to get them on public cloud or the private cloud version. You have to do it through their rise or grow program. So um, it's very precarious what's going on right now. And a lot of our SAP customers want this. Oh, and here's the other problem that I didn't even mention. SAP ECC6, if you're on enhancement pack five or below, supports expiring in 2025. If you're on enhancement pack six or above, six, seven, or eight, supports expiring in 2027. So all these clients are worried about having to be forced upgrades just to stay supported, or they could come to a Ramini street and take their time until maybe SAP gets one code set. Having these two code sets, one code set that's essentially on-prem and private cloud and another code set that's public cloud, how is SAP going to maintain those two code sets? Eventually, it seems it has to become one code set. So yeah. many customers are taking a wait and see attitude until SAP actually gets one code set. We understand what the rules are. Is it possible? Does the software work on public cloud? Can I actually get there if I'm a $10 billion manufacturing company? And if not, it might be more cost effective and less risky for me to stay right on ECC6 until everybody gets their act together. Yeah. Well, and it's, you know, it's an interesting question here, a follow-up that's sort of tied to this here from Philip on LinkedIn. He's Philip says, is SAP public cloud a growing market? I think you said a thousand, a thousand customers have gone to the SAP public cloud. And yes. you're also saying that the public majority... cloud edition. Okay. Yeah. So, so that's, what's interesting. People think they're moving to the cloud with S for HANA because it's, it's SAP's cloud product, but only a thousand of those 21,500 have moved to the public cloud edition. Right. The others are in the private cloud, which is essentially that hybrid of it's not on-prem, but it's also their own instance of the software that they can still customize or do it. That's right. With it. That's right. And you can, and, and yeah, and it's, and it's hard when the customer is customizing the code, which they really need to do in many cases. So I don't know what the future is going to be, Eric. I don't know how this is going to shake out. Frankly, I would love to see SAP make this work like Salesforce and Workday did on the public cloud version. And Ramini Street can have a massive business to help move customers from ECC6 to S4HANA public cloud. Um, yeah. and, and, and remember, we built those AMS services and consulting services. So we thought there was going to be a massive move. And we're not seeing it yet. And I don't know how it's going to shake out. Yeah. Yeah. In one hand, you could you could make an argument that because 67 percent of ECC customers have not invested in S4 HANA yet. On one hand, that says, OK, well, that's a big market. Right. Maybe that wait and see attitude that you're saying customers seem to have, which I agree with SAP's response to try and get them off, you know, to rock those opportunities off center is to say, OK, well, we're, what if we cut off maintenance? You know, at a certain point, then 
you know, you, you basically have no choice. Now you have to go to S4 HANA. It seems like that's, uh, you know, that's a strategy for sure. I don't know that it's in customer's best interest by any means, but that seems to be the approach that SAP and Oracle and, and even Microsoft's doing something similar with Great Plains customers and old Dynamics, you know, Microsoft Dynamics AX customers and, and things of that nature. So um, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, this is, um, I'm seeing, well, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing some great comments in the chat here about, you know, Christian Klein making announcements at the DSAG, uh, and how you won't get generative, generative AI will only be facilitated for the public cloud or private rise edition. Um, here's some other, here's some other challenges. So, and, and, and I've got some recommendations as well. Um, you published a great 12 minute video, Eric, that I loved, which talked about the way I read between the lines is an unprecedented amount of Esfrahana implementation failures where, right companies are actually shutting down the projects. Right. And, and, and they're trying to figure out what they're going to do next. So let's do some math. Let's say that you've spent, let's say you're a big company, $10 billion, $20 billion company, and you spent $100 million to try to go live on SAP, S4HANA, any version, public cloud, private version, private cloud, um, on-prem. And you couldn't get there and you failed. And you're in year three, of a $10 million a year annual SAP contract, uh, a subscription contract for cloud, which includes maintenance and and uh, and uh, licenses, right? And you've pulled the plug on the project. So you're 100 million in, and now you've got to also pay 10 million a year for the next three years, mm -hmm. and you're not using the software. Right. Why license for the whole organization? Yeah. And why do these five-year lock-in contracts? The other thing that people do is they'll trade or they'll give up their ECC6 licenses, but they'll sign a contract with SAP that says they're forced to be live on the public on the, on one of the Esfahana versions within two years, or they they lose these on-prem perpetual software licenses that they paid a lot of money for. Why do right. that? Why can't you negotiate something where you say, okay? In good faith, I'm going to try to get to one of these Esfrahana versions. I'm going to uh, implement it for, let's say, five or five or ten percent of my company, like my my corporate functions, or one of my GOs, or one of my business units. And together, me, the customer, my systems integrator, and SAP are going to be on the hook to make this work. And if we can make it work for that five or ten percent which is a lot less than a hundred million dollar blown investment. Let's say it's 5 million and we can prove the concept together. We get to do more. Mm -hmm. And Oh, by the way, if it doesn't work and I have to pull the, the plot, the pull the plug after that POC, um, I get to go back to my on-prem ECC six and stay there until I figure out how to make this work. Now, in all fairness to SAP and everybody, I, I don't want the listeners to, to get us wrong. It's not SAP's fault every time a project doesn't work. Right. There's the systems integrator, there's the customer, and there's SAP. The software has to work. The systems integrator has to implement it right. The customer has to have the correct requirements. You know, everybody has a role in this to make it work. But for whatever reason, there's been a lot of failures. So what we all can agree on is there's a high level of risk. 
when you're taking on a massive project like this. So wouldn't it make sense to minimize your risk by only licensing for a small patient, a, a small portion of your company to prove the concept? We're here with Sebastian from Mermini Street talking about inside the ERP software cartel. We've got a lot more to cover, but we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 140. My name is Eric Kimberling. You can find new episodes of this episode or of the show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. And you can also go to transformationgroundcontrol.com to view past episodes of the show as well or listen to it wherever you, you listen to podcasts. So be sure to check out the website to get uh, your fix of this show for any episodes you may have missed in the past. And you can keep checking that website uh, week to week for new episodes as well. So we're here with Sebastian from Rumini Street talking about inside the ERP software cartel. Let's jump back into the conversation. Everything you're describing, I think, you know, it's it sort of, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, the last couple of years and how, you know, in 25 years in this space, I'd, I'd be curious to see if you agree or disagree with this statement, but in my opinion and my perception of being in the space for 25 years is I've never seen this sort of, I'll, I'll, I'm going to call it, I'm going to call a spade a spade. I think it's reckless behavior on the part of big software vendors. And I think, you know, to your point, yeah, it's not their fault in some ways. They're trying to sell software. That's their job is to sell software. They're trying to converge the code to one solution, like you said, one version of the code. You can't have five different versions floating out there. You've got to consolidate and get everyone there eventually. But the way they're setting these deadlines and these incentives they're creating for customers, yes, the customers are complicit. To your point, they're not looking at alternatives. They're not saying, hey, hold on a minute. Let's do what's right for the business. So the shame on them, too, for for falling prey to this. But, man, I, I just haven't seen anything like this in my career where it's just – I mean, it's reckless. I mean, that's, that's the best word I can think of to describe it. And it may not be intentionally reckless, but it's it's causing, it's wreaking havoc on their customers. And yes, they're selling more software, but that you have to ask the question, is it, the, is it in the best interest of customers? And if they keep doing this, what I worry about is I worry that this space is going to become heavily regulated at some point in the future. If, if they keep doing this stuff and, and, and they don't chill out and figure out how to do this better, um, when I say they, I mean all of us really, the, the entire ERP software community we don't figure out a better way to to do this. I mean, the last thing we need is the government to come in and try and solve the problem for us. And I, I feel like that's where we're headed. If, if you get these big, massive companies, especially government entities, they start failing in these projects, you're going to see some regulation that's going to happen at some point because of that. Yeah. Uh, Kyler Cheatham in the chat asks a great question, you know, with the POC theory, does that create silos in the organization, ineffective interoperability? I don't think so, because if you bring the whole organization in this together and you say, OK, look, we have a fiduciary responsibility in our organization to not just throw away one hundred million dollars. So 
it's on us to prove the concept and make it work. We want to make it work. That's our goal. But unless we get past this first gate where we've proven that it works, we're not going to move to the second or the third gate or the fourth gate. So it's incumbent upon everybody to really work hard to make this work. When you sign these massive contracts to do a $100 million implementation, five-year, you know, $10 million subscription fees, um, if it doesn't work, everyone's still getting paid. Right. It's you got to have some incentive and some deterrent and some consequences in a way. And I think people have to earn the next steps. And then Gassan says he's not surprised if 40% of the paid for features subscriptions are not used by organization organizations. I don't know if you guys remember, there was a company called Panaya um, out of Israel that I think was acquired by Infosys and then again spun out. But they used to analyze what code is actually being executed after an SAP upgrade. And you'd be shocked that, and I remember these reports, the most used features, the code was ex getting executed by maybe 10 or 12% of the people that actually did the upgrades. So everybody thinks they're doing these upgrades to get all this new functionality. But in many, in many cases, they're only doing a technical upgrade just to stay supported. They're not, they're not taking advantage of any of the new customers, any of the new features and functionality, any of the new capabilities. They just want to get live. And they're not using any of these features and functionalities. So it questions, again, the ROI and the value proposition. But great, great questions from the audience. What I do you think it is? We're not getting to every one of them. No, that's right. The, the, uh, so Gassan's, back to Gassan's comment, though, what do, you, what do you think that number is? He said he's not surprised that 40% for paid feature subscriptions are not used by organizations. Do you think that's a good number? Do you think it's higher or lower than that? I think it's much okay. higher than that. I, I mean, I remember the, the Panaya numbers were closer to 90% not used. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Very interesting. Um, so what, so yeah, we've talked uh, Philip Byer says only 12%. And, 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 and I'm talking about just to be clear, only 12% of that code was actually getting executed hmm. when Panaya would look at these upgrades. And these were upgrades to enhancement packs, to, um, to support packs, um, to new releases. Right. So what do you, so we've talked about the cartel and sort of what, what's happening here behind the scenes or, or, it's really not behind the scenes. It's just part of the part of the industry. But what, why do you think vendors are doing this? Like what? And I think you've alluded to it, but I'll just ask it, ask the question more explicitly. Why do you, why do you think SAP, Oracle, all the big vendors are are doing this? I think there's a massive, uh, massive pressure from Wall Street to you see, once you get a customer in a subscription based contract um, where you've got annual recovering re recurring revenue, ARR and the switching costs are so high with SAP and Oracle due to the complexity of the product. So SAP ECC6 might be the most complex application software ever written in the history of the world with 400 million lines of code. And that's one of the reasons why we love it. It's like a Swiss army knife. There's so many things you can do with it, but, you know, be careful as well. You know, buyer beware. You can't have these wild, wild west runaway projects where they're not controlled and everybody just goes and does their own thing and you never get live. You have to have a plan of what you're going to do and, and, and when you're going to get live. Uh, but SAP and Oracle clearly want to move to be all cloud, all subscription, all ARR, like Salesforce and Workday, um, so they could show that they're making a lot more profit on a per customer basis and their stock will go up. And mm -hmm. by the way, it would make sense. It would be great 
for everybody in a way if the cloud products worked and were successful and were easy to implement and the jury's still out, unfortunately. Yeah. And again, we would want that to be, we would want that to work because it would be a lot of business for us. Right. Well, and, and you talk a lot about Workday and Salesforce in comparison to SAP and Oracle. And I think the big difference with, with Salesforce and Workday in it is that they, they're native cloud solutions, right? They were built from the cloud from the very start, way before cloud was, was a thing, you know, such a, such a big thing as it is now. Whereas SAP, Oracle, Microsoft, all these guys now are trying to figure out how do we take our legacy on-prem solutions and turn it into a cloud solution. And so I think that's that's the awkward phase that I think the industry is going for. Going yeah, through. and if you think about now, you know, Gartner has this great concept called composable ERP, where you kind of keep your core ERP and you innovate around the edges with true cloud companies. And we have, you know, we have SAP uh, customers that have uh, replaced the SAP core HCM with success factors, which is a cloud subscription-based company that's also owned by SAP. So that's a way that you can go to the cloud. Uh, in my opinion, when people talk about the cloud, they're talking mostly about the big three hyperscalers, AWS, GCP, and Azure. And if you can move your data center to the cloud, forgetting about applications for a minute, you can run your on-prem SAP or your on-prem Oracle in the cloud on AWS, Azure, uh, GCP, and that kind of gets you to the cloud. That gets you to going digital. So you can kind of check the box and say, hey, I'm going there. I'm doing some things. I'm, I'm doing some really, some really good things. But when you're going when you have to do, when you're talking about application software or database and you have to do a, a massive rip and replace implementation on software that's run your company successfully, everything in your company for 10, 20 years, uh, it's a big undertaking. And these projects can be $100 million with massive risk instead of you know just moving from your data center to a cloud vendor. Right, right. Now, here's an interesting question from Ryan. I'm going to see if I can show, I can't show the whole question, but I'll read it anyway. Um, but he, he, Ryan says on LinkedIn and various other industries like video and audio production, e-commerce, marketing, et cetera, people talk. If there were softwares that failed as often as SAP seems to fail, no one would ever use them. And it'd be widely known in those communities to not use that product. What keeps customers buying into ERP systems that so often fail, especially now? Yeah. Uh, on the SAP side, you have to ask the honest question, what's, what's your choice? Um, mm -hmm. You know, if you're, for, if you're a big company, so SAP has kind of owned the market for manufacturing, distribution, supply chain inventory for big companies, let's say over a billion dollars in annual revenue. Um, you've got products out there that say that they do it like NetSuite. Um, you've got Microsoft Dynamics coming upstream a little bit, but is there another big ERP provider for manufacturing, distribution, supply chain, inventory, besides essentially Oracle and SAP. So I think the net net is you don't have a lot of choice. Mm -hmm. It may not be that way forever. You know, what if Salesforce.com decided to roll up a bunch of their competitors and not just do CRM, but let's say they did HCM. Let's say they combined with Workday. Let's say they combined with a bunch of other uh, ERP vendors and created a true built from the ground up cloud-based manufacturing distribution supply chain inventory system. Um, you know, yeah. we do, I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. 
I, I just recently, um, over the weekend, actually, I just watched a movie. My wife and I watched this movie on, I think it was on Netflix. It's called Blackberry. Have you seen it? It's about, it's about the Blackberry device and the rise and fall of the company. And it's, it's really interesting. You would being a crossing the chasm kind of guy, uh, you would like the movie. It's really well done. And it's about, you know, it's a, it's a fiction, not, it's not fictional. It's based on reality, but it's reenacted. Of course, it's not a real documentary. Um, but they talk about how BlackBerry was the only option for a long time. And then all of a sudden iPhone came along, they didn't view it as a threat and they didn't respond quick enough. And I think I, part of me does wonder if that's going to happen to SAP. I think SAP has such a corner on that big market that you're talking about that it's really opening up opportunities for a Salesforce. Or I think that's why Salesforce has come to prominence in the first place. Same with Workday. They're, they're creating these, they're chipping away at the big massive behemoths and they're providing better solutions that are more focused and not trying to be everything to everyone, uh, more flexible, more nimble. They're more cloud-based. So I, I'd be curious to see where the industry stands in say 10 years or so. Cause I think you're, you, I think you'll see a shakeup of, of these big incumbents. Cause I think they, yeah. when you don't have competition, you just, I mean, people will disagree with me in the SAP community, but you're going to lose innovation when you don't have that sort of competition. If they don't start to feel that pain, I think that that could limit some of the, some of the. Yeah. And, 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 and keep in mind, you know, what the SAP software does is amazing. And I don't think a lot of these other companies have 400 million lines of code and, you know, have done so many things for so many different industries and, and blah, 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 but it's complicated. I, I love Arun's comment here. I wonder if you could put that one up on the screen. It's a long one. Um, the long time nature. nature of these projects and high employee turnover lead to organizations just choosing technical upgrades to be uh, safe and put process upgrades to after the technology upgrade. But I fear that they don't follow through with all the needed process. I couldn't agree more. So when you talk about upgrades, you can do like brownfield, uh, greenfield, or even what I like called bluefield. So Brownfield is really you upgrade, you kind of do a technical upgrade like Arun's talking about, and you bring across all your same customizations and everything, and you just do it to get it done. And then you start thinking about what's the new functionality I can take advantage of. And Arun makes a point that a lot of customers never get to that new functionality because they, they it's taken them so long just to get the upgrade done that they're just done with it. They're like, okay, I've got the upgrade done. I've just bought myself five more years of support. And so now I'm going to take a deep breath, but I'm really not getting the value of why I even did the upgrade. If you think about upgrades, you should never, ever do a software upgrade unless one of three things are going to happen. And you should have a business case that details one or more of these three things before the project's even approved. You should be able to get an increase in your revenue. You should be able to cut your costs or take market share from your competitors. You should not have to do these upgrades just because they're forced upgrades from the vendor to stay supported. And that's what I think we've really lost in the software space. When I was part of PeopleSoft in 1993, we were a $30 million company. Eight years later, we were a $2 billion company. And I think we were sold to Oracle for $10 billion after that. Customers loved, they, they, were, they were good paying their maintenance because they were getting so many new features and functionality every year. But today, this software is extremely mature. And some people say, what else can you do to supply chain manufacturing distribution inventory that hasn't already been done? And am I really going to use it? What I like about this concept of Bluefield is you're doing the technical upgrade, but you're also taking advantage of some of the new features and functionality. And I think there's a move towards doing more of that. Right. We're here with Sebastian from Remini Street talking about inside the ERP software cartel. 
We've got a lot more to cover, but we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 140. My name is Eric Kimberling. You can find new episodes of this episode or of the show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. And you can also go to transformationgroundcontrol.com to view past episodes of the show as well or listen to it wherever you, you listen to podcasts. So be sure to check out the website to get uh, your fix of this show for any episodes you may have missed in the past. And you can keep checking that website uh, week to week for new episodes as well. So we're here with Sebastian from Rumini Street talking about inside the ERP software cartel. Let's jump back into the conversation. Right. Now, here's a interesting, another interesting comment from Arun on LinkedIn. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts and the audience's thoughts here. Um, but Arun says, I think companies like Tesla did build an in-house ERP system that fit their needs best. And that might be an option for the real big organizations to get the best value from the software they rely on daily. Do you think is custom software is that is that an option is that a thing? Do you well, think that's a Well, I've got a good story about that. Um, I create a great relationship at a conference with um, the CIO of Costco. Does everybody shop at Costco? I'll come right out with it, and I'll admit oh, I, I love Costco. <laughs> yeah, I love Costco. I love getting everything from Costco. If I can get a computer from Costco, a dishwasher from Costco, anything from Costco, I'm doing it. And they may not have as big a choice as some of the other competitors. But what I know is that if that TV breaks in four years, I can just call up the warehouse. They're going to say, bring it in. I'm going to give you a brand new one. No problem. So their customer support is just unbelievably great, which is why I like Costco. So I met the CIO of Costco at the time. They were a $140 billion company, I believe. And I'm like, wow, this is great. They, they must have so much SAP and Oracle. They were in-house running a custom software for a $140 billion company. This might have been five years ago, but they decided to go SAP. They decided to eventually go SAP. I'm not sure where they are on their journey, but I'm guessing they're either live or getting live with pieces of the organization. But they were running essentially a $140 billion organization on homegrown software. So it's possible, but very few $100 billion companies do it. Yeah. I mean, it takes a lot of resources and, and whatnot. But, you know, you bring up an interesting point when you talk about the service and the 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 competitive advantage that Costco has. And you have to ask yourself, well, what, you know, not that you need to necessarily have an entirely custom solution for your entire operations, but there might be part of your business where SAP is not going to work, Oracle is not going to work, Microsoft's not going to work. And, you know, there, to some degree, there are best practices, there's off the shelf, you know, functionality that can improve many of your processes. 
a lot of your processes might actually get watered down if you just defer to the software too much. So I think it's being selective in how you potentially use custom options or third-party bolt-ons or whatever the case may be to, to make a solution that works for you and gives you a leg up. And I love those three things you mentioned that the only reason you should be upgrading or implementing any sort of technology is, is if it accomplishes those three things, but you shouldn't do it just because you have to or because the vendor's telling you you should. Yeah, the ideal state, the promise of cloud software is that it can be plug and play. But right. we all know that almost none of this software is plug and play today. You know, right. the idea is that you can buy manufacturing software and it's going to work for every manufacturer. And all you have to do is configure it and make it work for you. But it's a lot more complicated than that. Um, will we get there someday? I don't know. There's a lot of big companies trying to get there, trying to work on it. Um, but I think my message to the crowd is you've got to manage your risk. Mm -hmm. And if I look at that 12 minute video of yours, Eric, where it talks about the number of failures, it's a possibility that it could fail. And if it fails, how do you manage that risk? And, you know, you've heard of CIOs losing their jobs. Companies have to restate their earnings because of some of these massive ERP failures. So you really have to think through it before you just say, oh yeah, of course, I'm going to go to that next new product line from Oracle or SAP. Yeah. And I think the difference, you know, failures have always been a challenge since you and I have been doing this, but the difference with failures lately are a little more concerning in that there's so many new reasons why the projects are failing. I mean, it's always been like, if you don't implement right, you don't have the right project governance. If you don't, if you're not willing to change, if you don't have good program management, all that stuff can lead to failure. That's always been the case. But now you're running into cases where the product just isn't ready for prime time. You know, you've got a cloud solution that you've been forced to upgrade to. And that cloud solution, in the case of the, the legacy on-prem providers, their new cloud solutions are not as mature. They might have newer stuff like AI and some of the stuff you're talking about, but then they're missing some basic functionality that, for example, SAP ECC has because they've had 20 plus years of perfecting that software for manufacturers, especially. Great so point. now you, you get manufacturers that are now trying to go to S4 HANA public cloud. I mean, that's a massive change and there's a lot of big deficiencies. And the clients that we have that have canceled their SAP projects, it's not for the typical reasons. It's not because, oops, we failed and we need to reset the project. It's, oops, this project, this software just is not going to work for us. I mean, it's just, and they pull the plug and, um, you know, I, I, I think you just have to be aware. You have to really poke holes in, I'm not saying don't move forward with S4 HANA, but you've really got to poke holes in it and understand where the gaps are and to your point, where the risks are. Well, so that's, that's why it might be, it, 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 if people ask me my personal opinion, I'd take a wait and see attitude until there's so much more proven data that the software works. And if, if SAP truly wants to get everybody to the public cloud version, which has no ABOP or Z program customizations, let's say, um, or they don't want them, uh, they've got to prove that, that, that there's a lot of people that have done it and done it successfully. And companies that look like yours, they're the same size. You know, they're not new greenfield implementations, you know, some mom and pop shop that's never run SAP before that can check the box and say, oh, yeah, I got the public cloud version running and my, you know, annual revenue is 100 million. Um, that's not a that's not a good comp. Um, right. You need other multi-billion comp dollar companies that are references that have done it in your space um, before you embark upon that. And in the meantime, right. again, there's third party support companies like us that can buy you time to figure out what you want to do. And, it, and if you think about a company spending, let's say, $2 million in annual maintenance revenue, they're really spending closer to like $4 million a year. 
when you figure that they have to pay systems integrators to support the custom code. They're constantly having to upgrade just to stay supported. What if those upgrades could go away? Um, and, you know, another piece that, that I, I don't think I mentioned yet is oftentimes when there's a new fix available, that fix is in another support pack or enhancement pack, which has 200 other fixes in it, or it's in another release, and you're back on the upgrade treadmill. Whereas mm -hmm. at Ramini Street, we'll fix that one problem that you have in whatever version of code you're ha you, you have it in and not force you to regression test 200 other fixes that are going to break everything else in your system. So when you add up those three components of the total cost of ownership, let alone the cost of the maintenance, your 2 million becomes 4 million and our price is 1 million. So what if you could, what if you could save 3 million a year for five years and use that $15 million in savings to plan your S4 upgrade when the software is ready and mature to your point. You know, right. there, there, there's a good financial argument. Yeah, for sure. That's a great, great point. Um, we've talked a lot about SAP, but what about Oracle? How's this is a question from Michael on LinkedIn. How's Oracle cloud positioning their software in the manufacturing distribution supply chain industry? Are there failures? Are you seeing the same issues, the same cartel-esque sorts of things in the Oracle ecosystem as you are in SAP? I'm seeing, from my, from my vantage point, I'm not seeing as much um, uptake in Oracle manufacturing distribution inventory. I am seeing Oracle being reasonably competitive in their fusion HCM products, human capital management, and their financials products hmm. and winning deals. And they're doing reasonably well in their Oracle cloud infrastructure, which you could say is a hyperscaler uh, that competes with AWS, Azure, and GCP. And they really want to bet the farm on things like OCI, and they're getting a decent amount of growth, even though they're not one of the top three companies in that, in that space yet. Right. Right. Here's a question from Gassan. Uh, this is a great one, or a comment more than anything. I'm just curious to hear your thoughts here, Sebastian. But he says ERP vendors aren't agile enough to release reliable upgrades with feature benefits, only introducing surface improvements for making more money. That's your cartel. <laughs> what, are your, what are your thoughts? Yeah. There? Yeah. You know, this, this cartel topic, um, if you think about it, how does everybody get paid? They only get paid when massive projects are going on. And to Gassan's point, if you're doing a massive project for very, very little ROI, why do it? And, yeah. and, and I would really, I would love to look back on all these cases that had like all this purported ROI, you know, here's everything we're going to get. We're going to increase our revenue, cut our costs, take market share from our competitors after doing this massive digital transformation to some Oracle or SAP cloud product. And then you look back after it's gotten done, assuming it actually got done and you say, did we deliver, you know, did we get did our revenue increase a lot more? Did we cut our costs? Did we take market share from our competitors due to these ERP implementations? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a great point. And I think, uh, you know, the sample size has to include the ones that never got to go live too. You have to look at, you know, the ones that don't ever get there. I think that's the, the tricky part is looking at what, why did these companies fail? What did they do wrong? And kind of the lessons learned from there versus the ones that did get to the finish line. Maybe they got some business value, but not all of it. So yeah, Philip's got a great point here too. Philip Byers, all implementations I attended had higher FTEs after the implementation again. So if the promise is supposed to be, you get to do things better, faster, cheaper, and, and more lean. 
Um, but yet you have a massive new workforce um, after the implementation. That might make sense if you implemented a ton of the new features and functionality and you were bringing massive new capabilities to your organization where that were driving a lot more revenue streams. You know, let's say they could increase your revenue 10 or 20 percent, but your FTEs only went up 5 percent. Um, that sounds like a good business case, but I don't think that's what Philip's talking about. Right, right. Here's an interesting uh, question from Arturo on on YouTube. Arturo says, good morning. I work for a small water and sewer district in Southern California, and we need to change our ERP. What resources do you offer special districts? Is it specific to Oracle and SAP? Um, I can speak for third stage. We do not We do not provide only services related to Oracle and SAP. Um, we are not affiliated with any software vendors, and we can help. We always help clients define their digital strategy, select the software, and then ultimately implement whatever software it is. So I think that's the beauty of this conversation and having the two of us here is both of our companies are independent, right? I mean, for Mini Street, Third 100%. Stage Consulting, we're not affiliated with these vendors. We we are trying to help companies navigate the vendors and their products and the implementations and the challenges that go along with that, but we're not affiliated with them. And I think you, that independence and that objective agnostic view of the world is what's so important here. To 100%. And around. by the way, we're not affiliated with each other. Right. So no money changes hands between third stage and Ramini street. You know, we don't yeah. pay them to bring us customers. They don't pay us to bring them customers, but um, I see them as a good value company that I think our customers would love. And I think they see us the same way. And mm -hmm. so we're just, you know, we're just trusted advisors. That's what we really want to be. We want to be trusted yeah. advisors in a customer or clients uh, ERP journey. And, you know, when you're quote unquote part of that cartel, it's really hard to get an unbiased opinion because again, you got to bring it back to the fact that people get paid for these massive projects. Yeah. So, so sometimes you're going to do an upgrade for the sake of an upgrade, not because there's a real business case to actually do it. Yeah. And so I would, I would strongly recommend that customers have independent agnostic trusted advisor people uh, just get a second opinion. Right. Yeah. That's and I think that's, that's one thing you and I violently agree on is we should not, you and I and our company should not be exchanging money. And we're the same way with every, every software vendor. I mean, we get software vendors all the time. They're like, Hey, if you, if, what if we give you 10% of the cloud subscription every time you recommend our product? And I always say, no, I'm like, yeah, that'd be, a, that'd be an easy way to make a quick buck for sure. I mean, we could, we could ramp up our uh, profitability and our revenue probably a lot faster if we did that. Yep. But it's not true to our values. It's not true to who we are. And by the way, the minute you, you start exchanging money and money, these little side deals, things get weird. You start fo I start focusing more on you, Sebastian, in terms of how can I make you happy so I can make more money off you. And I'm not focused on the customer and, and we make our money off the customers, right? They're, they're the ones paying us. So if they're not yeah, happy, we're, we're not giving objective advice. We're, we're a we're little supporting. over, but I have time and I think you have time, Eric. Um, I'm going to answer kind of a fun question off the beaten sure. path. Gassan asks why the name Ramini Street? Um, and I call it Ramini Street, but anytime I travel outside of the United States, everyone calls it Rimini Street because there's a very famous beach in Italy called Rimini Beach, and oh. it's kind of a resort town. And you just cannot correct anybody outside of the United States and say it's Rimini. We used to do that in the early days, but it's it's Rimini. It's like tomato, tomato, call us whatever you want. And we got the name because our, CI, our CEO lived on a street called Rimini Street. And he was looking at all these names uh, to name the company. And I don't think he liked 
all the ones that were coming up that people were coming up with. And he said, you know what, let's try this Rimini Street. And we've had a nice time with uh, plays, riffs on it, if you will. Like, hey, you know, save yourself $5 million a year. Take t- take a walk down R- Rimini Street for five years and pocket $25 million to go to your bottom line or fund your next digital transformation. You know, so we've had some fun with it. We have like, you know, our product is that everybody files cases is called Street Central. Um, you know, we've we've uh, we've had a good time with it. But it yeah. is a different name. We're here with Sebastian from Mini Street talking about inside the ERP software cartel. We've got a lot more to cover, but we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. I'm Kyler Cheatham from Third Stage Consultant Group, and I wanted to take a minute to personally invite you to our Stratosphere 2023 in-person event on October 4th through 6th in Denver, Colorado. We are super pumped to bring this event back in person after COVID. It will actually be the first time in three years that we've done an in-person stratosphere. And we're so excited to bring you top thought leadership and tactical project strategies throughout this important event. We'll not only feature keynotes from top speakers in the industry, but also interactive workshops where you can pick your area of expertise that you want to get information on regarding your digital transformation project. You can head to stratosphere2023.com to see our full agenda and our jam-packed excitement for the event. We also are offering a VIP ticket this year, which gives you full access to Eric as well as a signed copy of his new book. So I'd hope to see you there and meet you in person in Denver. If you have any questions, again, you can reach out to me directly at kyler.cheatham at thirdstage.com dashconsulting.com and I'll see you in Denver. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 140. My name is Eric Kimberling. You can find new episodes of this episode or of the show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. And you can also go to transformationgroundcontrol.com to view past episodes of the show as well, or listen to it wherever you, you listen to podcasts. So be sure to check out the website to get uh, your fix of this show for any episodes you may have missed in the past, and you can keep checking that website uh, week to week for new episodes as well. So we're here with Sebastian from Rumini Street talking about inside the ERP software cartel. Let's jump back into the conversation. So I've got a question for you that that um, it, it sort of it touches on some of the other questions from the audience too, but how can enterprise technology customers fight back. You know, we were talking about the cartel and sort of the forced upgrades and the challenges, the risks, um, lack of ROI, all the, all these different challenges, right? So what, what do customers do? You know, because you, we you mentioned the, the fact that what option do you have, for example, with SAP? If you're a big company, you have to use SAP. And if they're telling you you have to upgrade, you have to upgrade, right? And so there's sort of a helpless feeling that I think a lot of the market has right now. But how do we empower these enterprise tech buyers? Like what, what, what advice can you give? Yeah, well, you don't have to, you don't have to upgrade. You can come to a company like Rimini Street. And by the way, if you come to us, you can upgrade. We've had hundreds of customers upgrade under our support. Um, you know, when you leave, if you're on like a release of Oracle database, like 11 and 12, 11G or 12C, uh, you have access to 19 and 21. 19 is like the longer term release 
that is is the one that people would go to. 21 is an innovation release. At the end of this year, 23 is going to come out, which is the next long-term release. And by the way, SAP and Oracle are, for their newer releases, uh, I think for S4HANA, SAP has announced that with 23, they're not going to come out with a release every year. It's going to be every two years, and they're going to support it for seven years instead of five years. Mm -hmm. So they're somewhat getting the message, but that doesn't help all those customers that went live on um, 1511, 1610, 1709, 1809, et cetera. Um, they still have to figure out what they're going to do. But I would play hardball. I would, you know, you're the customer. Everybody should be working so hard to earn your business and not catch you in these gotcha contracts and, you know, this lock in and then you have no choice and oh, sorry. Um, everybody should have to earn your business. So I would take baby steps in these implementations. And if SAP says, hey, I don't want you going to a third party company to support ECC6 while you're upgrading to S4HANA, I think you need to say too bad. You don't have a choice. And, and oh, by the way, the only way I'm going to afford this upgrade to S4HANA is if I cut that 2 million, which is really 4 million to 1 million a year and use that 3 million in savings to fund my future cloud transformation with you. So yeah. in, in, you know, you asked how we help SAP or Oracle uh, at the beginning of this podcast, but that's a way we can really, really help them. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Especially these big companies that, um, you know, are being told, what is it? Is it 2027 where everyone on ECC needs to be off? Is, is that the, I can't even keep the date straight now. It's 2027 if you're on Enhanced Impact 6, 7, or 8. It's 2025 okay. if you're on ECC 6, Enhanced Impact less than 6. Okay. So let's look at the ones that are looking at. Or you can pay like an uplift to get it to extend it to like 2030. I don't know if that's a 10 or 20% uplift, but that's the other thing they hit you with. You know, you, you go into this extended support or, or customer specific maintenance and you get less or you get the same or you get less and they charge you more money. Yeah. How does that make sense? Right, right. Here's a great yeah. question from Saul. Um, great and question. How this is an awesome question. How real is the risk of being on an unsupported version? So let's just say 2025, 2027 comes and goes, and the the software we're on is no longer supported. We couldn't get to S4 HANA in time or Oracle Fusion in time. Um, and we're still dependent on these legacy products. They're not supported. What's the what's the what's the downside here? What what are we dealing well, with? Well, I, I would ask around your friends, what's the what's the reality? So if you look at Oracle database, any version below 19C is is unsupported. Ask around people that run Oracle database and you'd be you'd be amazed at how many are on releases in production live less than 19C. Now, there is a risk, but customers, I guess, manage that risk. Now, if they have Romini Street, the risk goes way down because we guarantee support on all of those unsupported releases for half the price. Um, we also have security products that work on those unsupported releases and we provide support for customizations, performance tuning, integrations, interfaces, even how-to questions. So I think the risk is drastically decreased. And we purposely set our company up to minimize that risk. Uh, but a lot of customers are doing this without third-party support or without Remini Street. And it just must show the value that they see in you know, they don't see the value in going to these new releases and they can stay right. on an unsupported release because I'm seeing a ton of it. Right. Yeah. And we still see, believe it or not, we still see customers, our clients that are successful companies. They're still on AS400 I series mainframe based systems. Now I'm not suggesting let's just wait 30 years before doing anything in, until it becomes totally obsolete. 
But all I'm saying is there are companies that are using 30 year old systems that are certainly not ideal. I don't, I don't recommend that, but they're surviving right now. It's going to be a lot more painful for them to make a jump from an AS 400 based system to a, you know, a public cloud based system. That's a huge jump and that's very risky. But the reality is these companies have survived and thrived on old systems that are quote unquote, not supported or quote unquote, you know, out of, uh, out of the uh, life cycle. Yeah, I think, Eric, there's two great points here made by Scott and Colleen. Scott says it's one thing to stay long term on an enterprise software. Maybe they support it. It's the integrations with ancillary components. that's the challenge of staying behind. Colleen says, I think the innovation, innovations in connectors, connectors, API development, power platform, a more platform dri driven environment is plausible. So I think in some ways, Colleen is answering Scott's question, but there is a lot of concern in tech stack compatibility hardware operating system, database applications, making them all work together. And we've built, there's a lot of, you know, there's the Dell Boomies, there's a lot of connectors, there's this composable ERP, there's taking things out of the core and innovating around the edges. And I think it is possible. And I think that is the future because otherwise it's just, it's just too hard and too complicated to have to do these massive upgrades every five years. And let's think about that. So if, if you had a software product like Database 12.2 that came out in 2017, you're not going to implement it in 2017, right? You're not going to be the first one to go live on a GA product that hasn't been li live for like, you know, maybe you'll wait one or two years for the bugs to get out of it. Right, Eric? Right. Makes right. sense. And right. so, so you would upgrade, let's say, on that 12.2 version in 2019. Let's say you've got a thousand database instances. That upgrade is going to take you two years. You've got many mission critical applications running on these databases. So <clears throat> you finally get live by 2021. And then all of a sudden that massive upgrade that you did is now unsupported in 2022 mm -hmm. because it's, it's only got a five-year uh, support lifespan. I think the model is just 100% broken. Yeah. It just doesn't That's work this point. way. Yeah. It's, it's so hard to stay current yeah. given these policies. Well, and not to mention that Technology changes so fast and it's changing faster. It's accelerating the, the pace of change. But organizations themselves have not necessarily increased their ability to change quickly, at least not as much as technology is changing. So I think that's part of the challenge, too, which is not really a technical issue. It's it's just an organizational human issue, too. But that's all that's a that's a whole nother topic for another another discussion at some point. Um, you know, here's a really interesting point. That I, I feel like um, I'm glad Gassan brings this up because I feel like we kind of have to talk about Y2K to put this all in context. So Gazan says, just like the oh, yeah. Y2K risk of not adding the century date field. Um, I've always thought, I'm glad he brings this up. Thank you, Gazan. I'm curious to hear what you think, Sebastian. But one thing I've always thought is Y2K was, um, was a great sales message for the enterprise tech space from the vendor perspective. They forced, they essentially forced a lot of customers to upgrade in Y2K out of fear. You know, they use that fear of, oh, if you don't upgrade your legacy system, when we switch over to 2000, the two-digit date is gonna is gonna get screwed up, and guess what? Nothing material happened in the world when Y two K flipped over, by the way, uh, which would suggest that it might have been a might have been a hoax. But I feel like this is sort of like another manufactured Y two K. Like we have to move to the cloud now. We just have to do it now. And, and you made the point earlier that investors love it, Wall Street loves it. That's the real driver here. So we're creating this panic and this fear and uh, confusion and chaos in the market, all because the vendors want to satisfy their investors. But but what are your thoughts? Is this sort of like Y2K all over again? Or how, how I do you call know? this unprecedented FOMO. 
fear of missing out. Right. My fear of missing out on going digital, going cloud, getting AI. And you just have to understand that so many of these promises are in their nascency. They're not even built out in these products. And, you know, there's complications and there's challenges, even with things like chat GPT that some organizations have banned uh, uh, from their internal companies from using. So mm -hmm. look, the promise and the idea and, you know, things like machine learning to map the human genome are unbelievable, but you have to just understand what it's going to do for your company and when, and what the investment is and what the return on that investment is going to be. There will no doubt be uh, exponential benefits from a lot of these technologies. You just have to be smart enough about if, when, why, how, and what's the return. Right. And you well, can't just willy-nilly say, oh, we got to go cloud. And then cloud is not cloud is not cloud. We got to go cloud. What does that mean? Does that mean right. that I move my data center to the cloud? Does that mean that I change my on-prem applications to cloud applications? Uh, does that mean that I'm now doing generative AI? You know, what am I doing and right. why? And, right. and why is one, how do you prioritize all these things for your business? And again, that, priorita that prioritization needs to increase revenue, cut costs, or take market share from competitors. There's a fourth one that often comes up, and that is preventing an unmitigated disaster. And sometimes that can work as well. Right, right. So you sort of lead into to a capstone question here to sort of tie, put a bow on all this conversation here in terms of, uh, you know, the, the challenges in the market and, and the, the forced upgrades and the, the whole cartel uh, aspect of the market. But what what first steps should customers, what should they do? You know, so we're, we're talking about all these risks and, and challenges and things to be aware of. It, let's just say I'm in a position where I, I've got a system that I know is going to be not supported at some point soon. And I know I need to do something and I'm just getting started on my journey. Like, how, would, how do you recommend that we get started on those journeys? I think you have to really think about what you're trying to accomplish. Um, how, how is what you're going to do with IT? You know, are you doing this because you want to retire technical debt because you're nervous? That, that's a different conversation than are you doing this to meet the needs of the CEO, like the, the, the three main goals of the CEO, whatever that is for your company. Can a ERP migration help me get there? And then before you embark on it, before you sign any contracts, you have to really, really map out exactly what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. And I think you have to manage your risk. And that means you have to minimize your risk, in my opinion, and you have to take baby steps. Big software vendors are not going to like that. They want to sell you massive contracts. They want to lock you in for a five-year deal. They want they don't want to talk about what would happen if it fails. You know what shouldn't fail that type of thing. Systems integrators will be the same way. But I wouldn't do that. I would say, hey, we're all in this together, and we're going to earn it one step at a time. Right. And and I would add to that too. I, I totally agree with everything you said. I would add one thing, which is you know look at your options and and assess objectively assess your options. Right. Because you have the option of. You certainly have the option. And you always have the option of saying, "Okay, I'm just going to do a big, massive upgrade right now," largely because my my system is being sunset, my legacy system is being sunset. So here's one option: I could go through this big, massive upgrade, replace everything now because the vendors tell me I have to get off the system by 2025 or whatever. 
Um, another option might be, well, what if I look for third-party support and I extend that timeline? I'm because of, not because I want to take forever to implement, but because I want to be more targeted. I want to be more deliberate. I want to go at my pace um, and wait. You know, take somewhat of a wait and see approach, more of a conservative approach. I'd say, um, what does that look like? What is the cost benefit of that scenario, and what's the risk of that scenario versus the risk of the big bang? You know, let's just go rip everything out and replace it now. So I think just looking objectively at your options and not feeling like you have to go one path. And I think that's what the market's doing is they're trying to, they're trying to force everyone onto the same on-ramp and upgrade now to the cloud, ideally public cloud and do it now. I mean, that's what they want, right? So that's what you're going to hear in the market is that's what you should do. But what we're saying is that you don't have to, this is your business and treat it accordingly and, and do what's right for you. Yeah. And you have to manage your risk. And, you know, uh, Eric, I'll just, this is my first podcast with you, but um, I love your audience. Uh, the questions, you've got really smart people uh, with yes. all these questions. Um, I look at more of these questions from Arun and everybody, and and I, we could talk for hours uh, together on, on these really, really great ideas. Um, and Arun talks about bad process and just doing a technical upgrade, and you're not really getting any benefit if you do that. You should focus on process upgrades. And he's right. Um, but then the question comes is, is your custom code in like your ABOP and your Z program customizations better than the process improvements that the vendor put in the cloud version, or is their process better? And it's not always the vendors is better. Oftentimes it's not. Oftentimes the code that you originally wrote is actually better than the code that you see in the new vendor upgrade. And that makes it much more challenging as well. All right. Thank you, Sebastian. A lot of great stuff there. A lot of very uh, interesting and heated discussion and topics there. So I uh, really appreciate having you here on the show. And uh, like I said there, the, even though we ran a little bit over uh, what our normal interview times are, there's a lot of stuff we, we didn't cover. We could have easily gone for another hour, but um, we'd love to have you back on the show. So we'll, we'll look forward to having Sebastian on the show as a follow-up to dive deeper into some of these different areas we didn't get to. Um, but in the meantime, we'll take a quick break and we're going to come back with uh, just a quick debrief on the conversation as well as uh, later in the show, we're going to have Greg Benton on the show to talk about whether or not ERP software is dying. And we'll try our best to provide an answer to that solution or to that answer or to that question, I should say, uh, when we come back. But first, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Interested in working for a company that truly values your unique skills and experience? Here at Third Stage, we don't hire based on resumes alone. We look at the full candidate, experience, and willingness to provide excellent service for our clients. Within a technology independent and agnostic consulting firm, you have the opportunity to learn across industries with a diverse group of clients. Our consultants also have the opportunity to diversify their portfolio and learn across technology systems. If you're interested in joining a high growth entrepreneurial organization, please reach out to us at work at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 140. My name is Eric Kimberling, and you can find new episodes of this show every week at transformationgroundcontrol.com. You can also subscribe on YouTube as well as audio podcast platforms throughout the world. So be sure to check out new and past episodes uh, along the way here. And we just had Sebastian on the show to talk about inside the ERP software cartel. And very timely conversation. It 
kind of lines up with a, a YouTube video that I recently filmed that will be released sometime in October on my YouTube channel. And uh, it's a it's about a 10 or 12 minute video where I talk about uh, the tech cartel. And so I try to summarize what some of the major challenges are um, within the, the, the tech cartel. Sebastian talk, touched on a lot of stuff, you know, in that in that conversation as far as some of the forced cloud migrations and, and the limited maintenance support. Those are two big things that I, I talk about in, in my video as well. But there's a few other things we didn't talk about that I would love to have him back on the show to talk about at some future time. But in that video that you can find on my YouTube channel beginning sometime in October, I'm sorry, I can't be more specific than that. We have a very uh, nimble uh, YouTube creation process and we oftentimes uh, shuffle things around based on what's what's timely or, or hot at the time. But in this video, uh, when it comes out, you'll see we talk about forced cloud migrations. I talk about uh, ongoing support and maintenance options, which are two things we did talk about. But a couple of the things that we didn't really dive into in a lot of detail, Sebastian, that I think are worth noting when we think about the ERP software industry and the big tech vendors in particular being part of a cartel or having created somewhat of a cartel, I think you really have to look at the whole ecosystem of, of sort of what what machine they've built to help sell software. And, and in their defense, these software vendors are doing what they're supposed to do, which is sell more software. But in the process, what they're doing is they're creating a lot of problems for their customers. Most of the time, I'd say it's probably unintentional, although there's times where I, I wonder whether it's unintentional, but most of the time I'd say it's unintentional. And there's other things that happen or other consequences of this tech cartel and sort of the, I don't want to say it's a monopoly because it's not. You, you do have options. You have SAP, you have Oracle, you have Microsoft, you have tier two options, you have best of breed options. So there is a proliferation of options out there. But you heard Sebastian say in the show that um, I think his exact words for big Fortune 500 global organizations, the question is, what else are you going to do? What other options do you really have? And I think that more than anything speaks to the problem in the industry is you do have a couple big players that really have the big market cornered. And, and to be fair, it's partly because so few products and so few companies can scale to that size to be able to support a, a large organization's enterprise technology needs. But on the other hand, there's, uh, you know, it leaves an opening or it leaves a, a deficiency in the market, if you will. So some of the other things that come out of this whole cartel, you know, some of the other symptoms or the other um, side effects of the cartel are things like, uh, just to give you a few examples from my upcoming video, one is a rigged ecosystem where you've got basically a bunch of system integrators, a bunch of consultants, and even industry analysts that are being paid by the software vendors to perpetuate the same message. So there's a lot of money exchanging hands that's creating an echo chamber in the industry, an echo chamber of Kool-Aid drinking, I'll call it where you hear it, you're repeating the same message over and over, you're having multiple parties repeat that same message to where the end customer ends up thinking that that's fact or that's reality. And much of what's being said from a sales and marketing perspective is simply not true and is misleading in many cases. And so you have to look at you know that next Gartner Magic Quadrant you look at or that next Forrester report that talks about how a certain type of technology or how a certain software vendor is superior to others. You have to ask yourself, was there money being exchanged in order to uh, publicize or in order to put that report together. And, you know, these pay to play models that industry analysts support um, are risky at best. I mean, it, it creates a lot of, of it just further perpetuates the blind spots that organizations have, and it fails to disclose the real truth and the real risks of enterprise technologies in general. And 
I'm not buying it for a minute, anyone that says there are no risks or that they've found a cure for all these risks of enterprise technology implementations. If that were true, you wouldn't see so many failures and failures are increasing and accelerating in the marketplace right now, largely because of some of the things that the, the vendors are doing in, in the sort of card, cartel mentality. So that rigged ecosystem is one, one thing I talk about in the video as well. Unrealistic expectations, I think that's something that's a little bit more a little bit more innocuous um, in terms of, um, you know, just being oversold. You know, a lot of times sales and marketing people tend to overplay strengths and overplay the possibilities, and they tend to downplay the risks in the dark side. So it's somewhat understandable, but what happens when you combine it with that rigged ecosystem where industry analysts and consultants, big system integrators, big consulting firms are all saying the same thing, so you think it must be true. Um, what that does is it creates unrealistic expectations in terms of how much time it's going to take to implement, uh, how much money, how many resources, what the risk involved is, you tend to hide a lot of those blind spots and pitfalls that organizations run into. And that's a that's another problem that you see with the cartel. Um, this concept of best practices, um, and I, I use the word best practices in air quotes, uh, because there is no such thing as best practices. And I stand by that comment, feel very, feel very strongly about that, because there is no universal board that's the universal arbitrator of truth on what a best practice is. But yet, Software vendors all proclaim that they have best practices. Um, what I would say is that every software vendor has practices and functions that work for their software. It's how their software works. And then you also have organizations and end customers that have their own best practices, but there is no universal definition of what a best practice is. So for a software vendor to come in and sell you on a concept of how they have best practice, uh, that's misleading at best. Um, so the, the whole concept of best practices is another sort of uh, indicator of the or another output from the from the cartel and then another one that that we see a lot uh, especially with the legacy on-premise software vendors like sap and oracle where they're moving their on-prem solutions to the cloud and in doing so they have incomplete products that are not fully baked they're not fully matured yet um, and they won't be for a few more years What's happening is what they're doing with a lot of their customers that are in different industry verticals or niche areas of the market, they'll position this concept of co-innovation, where basically customer pays software vendor to co-innovate to create the functionality they need, and that functionality then allegedly becomes part of the standard solution going forward. A um, whole lot of you know questions I have around that model, the ethics of it, and you know whether or not customers should be paying for a software vendor to develop what they should already have, but that's a whole other story. But what happens is this whole concept of co-innovation is now being used to turn something that's a that's a I would consider somewhat of a fatal weakness of these software vendors, and they're turning it into they're trying to spin it into a positive, like we're partnering with you to co-innovate, um, which. For some organizations, that might make sense, but I would argue that most organizations in the market are not in a position to be on the bleeding edge to be the test pilot for a new function or a new series of workflows and business processes. The whole reason they're buying commercial off-the-shelf software is because they're assuming they're going to get that uh, as part of the off-the-shelf solution. But now what's happening is software vendors are basically acknowledging that they don't have the answers, they don't have the solutions they need, so they're going to co-innovate uh, with their with their customers. So that's another... Um, interesting tactic by the cartel is to is to create that that co-innovation concept and somehow normalize it make it seem okay um, and i have to question why is that okay why are why are customers willing to pay for r&d i suppose if they're willing to pay for it maybe maybe they're the problem not not the software vendors but um that's that's for you to decide i'd love to hear the hear the comments uh, from the audience here um 
And then, you know, I asked the closing question I asked Sebastian was, you know, what do you do? You know, what are the first things you should do as part of defining your strategy and roadmap to overcome or to navigate this cartel? And he had, had a great response for that. And I'll just sort of reiterate some some thoughts here. You know, the way you navigate it is, first of all, I'm not suggesting, even though it's a pretty harsh, it could be perceived as a harsh or very strong use of language here in terms of cartel and really calling out the industry for for what it is. But one of the things that, that we we have noticed is that um, there's a lot of options that you need to recognize. So when you're when you're looking at the um, when you're looking at what your options are, and let's just say you're going to go with SAP or Oracle, the two big guys in the industry, I'm not suggesting don't pursue that path, but do it at your own pace. And you know, probably the best metaphor or analogy or, or visual I can give you is if they've got a gun to your head telling you to migrate to the cloud now and you've got X number of years to do it because that's their timeline, my suggestion would be push the gun away from your head and make decisions clear-headed on what's best for your business, which may, there's a off chance it may line up with, with what the vendor's best interests are, but I'd say for most organizations it's not going to line up and you're going to have to sort of uh, uh, reconcile those two things, vendor's best interests with your own. And the best way to do that is to focus on your own best interest and do what you need to do. And and by doing that, um, or to help you do that, you really have to think about what your options are. You have third-party maintenance options like Remini Street. You certainly have the ability to diversify your outside support, whether it's uh, you know ongoing maintenance, implementation support. Um, you don't need to you don't need to get all your your software and services from the software vendor. In fact, I would argue you're better off not getting it all from the software vendor because. If you have all your eggs in one basket, they have too much undue influence over you at that point. And by diversifying and pulling in program management support or change management support, pulling in architects that you need that are not affiliated with your software vendor, but yet are experts and know that technology really well, you're going to be better off and you're going to be more empowered. Too many organizations now have this sort of learned helplessness where they um, they they feel like they have to just defer to whatever the software vendor or the system integrators tell them. Uh, but what, what our goal is and what our job is to is to help our job is to help our clients figure out how to own these projects themselves and to take control of the projects. And that's really the one of the best ways to be successful. So those are some some things to think about just as a follow up to the conversation with Sebastian. Um, some some ways that you can acknowledge that the cartel is there. It's always going to be there. I don't see it going away anytime soon. So knowing that you're probably not going to just stick your head in the sand and not do anything technologically you know you've got to deal with it, right? So what do you do? You know, how do you, how do you navigate that? And so we'll f- hopefully that gives you a few ideas there. So, um, you know, that sort of leads into another thought. In, in one of the comments I made um, somewhere in the middle of that conversation with Sebastian, I was talking about how I thought that, you know, I was kind of questioning or raising the question of, is SAP going to be the dominant ERP provider in 10 years? And there's part of me that thinks they will not be. I, I think they are just... Um, I think they're just insulated enough and, and drink, they're high enough on their own Kool-Aid that I think that they, they may end up in a downward spiral at some point in the future. Uh, sounds like blasphemy to many of you right now. I get it. I've said this on social media before, and I've been uh, you know, crucified by some for saying it. But you have to look at, you know, look where Bond was, you know, back in the 90s. Bond was the dominant ERP provider for a certain amount of time, and they became completely obsolete, and SAP came along. And PeopleSoft came along and uh, others came along and destroyed them. Um, I just wonder when and who is going to be the one to destroy uh, SAP potentially to where SAP becomes maybe not a has-been, but more of a a middle-of-the-road ERP provider. 
Um, be curious to see what the audience thinks, though. Do, do you think there's a there's a movement? Are there certain vendors that you think will will chip away at, at uh, SAP and Oracle and others? Um, but regardless of what you think there, you might be interested in this next segment where we're going to have Greg Benton on the show to talk about is ERP software dying? And what we're going to talk about is, is ERP software as we know it, the traditional integrated monolithic ERP software. Is that software dying? And if so, what are the alternatives to it? So we're going to kind of unpack that comment and that thread and really explore that with the audience here. In the meantime, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Are the incumbents that are in place now, let's look at you know SAP, Oracle, Microsoft, those big ERP software providers, are they going to be the same three incumbents we're dealing with 10 years from now? Um, or will there be someone else that comes along and, and makes uh, turns one of them or multiple um, multiple vendors into what Bond is now? Um, so be curious to hear your thoughts there. Um, so anyway, we'll have Greg here on the show here in just a moment. But first, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, your host here on Transformation Ground Control. I want to personally invite you to our upcoming Stratosphere 2023 event. It's a conference that we host every year. It's a tech agnostic conference, features a number of independent technology agnostic speakers, both from third stage consulting, as well as from outside our company. We try to bring in the, the industry's brightest minds and the most objective minds to help you learn the things you need to know to make your transformation successful. We cover everything from digital strategy to software evaluation, to change management, to program management, to process improvement, data and architecture, migration, all that kind of stuff we're going to cover here in Digital Stratosphere. It's going to be October 4th, 5th, and 6th in Denver, Colorado. I'll be there. Kyler will be there, our co-host here on Transformation Ground Control, as well as others will be there. So be sure to check us out. We'll also have great opportunities for networking, for peer networking, as well as networking with speakers. We're also going to have great entertainment, too. We'll have some happy hour networking events, as well as live music from that 80s band, which is uh, my favorite cover band. They play all 80s stuff. Uh, so come enjoy that as well while you're, while you're at it. It's all happening in Denver, October 4, 5, and 6. Uh, you can go to stratosphere2023.com to learn more about the event. Be sure to register by August 15th to get the early bird discount, which is uh, fairly significant. Again, stratosphere2023.com. Learn more about it. Hope to see you there. And uh, in the meantime, hope you enjoy the rest of this episode of Transformation Ground Control. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 140. My name is Eric Kimberling. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on audio podcast platforms as well as YouTube as well. Just subscribe to my channel and you'll get alerted every time a new episode is dropped. And uh, certainly go to transformationgroundcontrol.com to listen to and view past episodes as well. We've got 139 other episodes to choose from besides this one. So I'd love to love to get that uh, content out to as many of you as possible. So our next guest here is Greg Benton, who's been on the show before. In fact, this clip I'm going to play you is, is from a previous episode about six months ago, uh, six months ago from this particular uh, podcast. And it was such a good conversation and so relevant and timely and, and related to the conversation with Sebastian. I thought it'd be worth playing again um, here today. And so the topic Greg and I get into in this clip is, is ERP software dying? And the whole idea here is uh, just really trying to unpack the ERP software market as we know it today, kind of where it's headed, and what are the other threats to the traditional monolithic ERP providers, and what might happen to the market as a result of that. 
And of course, as always, I'd love to hear your feedback. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Do you see other trends or other developments in the market that might change that? So I'd love to hear your feedback here. So with that all being said, let's roll the clip with Greg and I talking about is ERP software dying? This is a very interesting topic and one that uh, you and I have discussed at, at great depth and great detail uh, over the years. And uh, it's one of those topics that seems to generate a lot of discussion. I, I imagine there'll be some on the live stream here today that, that agree that ERP software is dying and ERP software as we know it is dying. There's others that may think that is absolute garbage and ERP software is the answer to everything. So we're here to really look at unpacking the pros and cons of both, um, both ERP software as well as other options within the marketplace, other technological options in the marketplace. But before I jump in with some of these questions and discussion points, maybe just tell us a little, little bit about your background, Greg. Sure, Eric. Um, you know, I've uh, been about uh, 25 years working with different systems and different technologies, both in implementation of digital transformations and ERP software, uh, as well as, uh, in some cases, remediation of implementations that haven't gone so well. Uh, in all of that time, definitely been looking at the, uh, the business needs of the client, of the organization that we're working with in terms of what needs to be done for enterprise operations. And uh, enterprise operations is really taking over for what has traditionally been enterprise resource planning software. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're here to talk about today is how those systems interoperate and what's coming next, really. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's it's an interesting conversation for sure. And I, I want to dive into the whole idea and understanding of, of ERP software in general. If we kind of look at the history of ERP, which if you, if you aren't familiar, that's enterprise resource planning um, systems that tie together a company's operations into a single unified platform. That's sort of the really high level summary of what an ERP system is. And ERP systems were created decades ago as a way to really give organizations a way out of the problem that they were having at the time of having siloed data sets and siloed systems and a spaghetti bowl of different technologies that they were trying to deploy and use to run their businesses. ERP systems came along decades ago to provide sort of a one, a one-stop shop, if you will, or one solution yeah. that could tie together your entire organization. So it makes total sense where the origins came from and why ERP systems are around and the, the need that they fill. Um, what, what do you see as some of the advantages of that model of having a single ERP system to run your business? And then we'll come back to what some of the downsides and alternatives are to, to ERP systems. But what are some of yeah. the strengths and why organizations do it? You know, all the way along, and you just, you just outlined it perfectly. So over the last two decades, ERP systems have really evolved into, um, you know, greater and greater capabilities for back office functions within organizations. And in that time, they've really just kind of grown into uh, siloed operational um, work streams within the organization that really aren't connected, that really don't uh, come together in a, in a uh, cohesive fashion. And so uh, enterprise systems and um, the, uh, the software vendors themselves started taking on more and more of this functionality and putting it into a more integrated technology platform. And that integration, that passing of data between work streams and being able to make knowledgeable decisions based upon all of the data coming into a, a common source of the truth 
is, is the big advantage with enterprise software as we have it today. Um, the other advantage is that, um, especially with the advent of multi-tenant cloud technologies, there is continual upgrades to the, uh, to the software systems that are, are leading edge out there. So cloud native applications can be updated, upgraded, and uh, it does away with the, the old um, you know, biannual upgrades of the entire software system uh, that used to occur. So unified data, as well as bringing all of your applications and functional elements into one common repository so it can be managed under a single umbrella. Right. Yeah. So it solves a definitive problem that existed prior to ERP software in, in, in terms of providing that unified system and the, the constant upgrades in the, in the multi-tenant model that you described. Sounds, sounds good, right? It sounds like that's what we all want. We want an integrated system. We sounds want like a it. single platform. Sounds great. So why in the world would we be here to talk about some of the downside risks of ERP software? Because it sounds, sounds almost too good to be true. So what, what, are, what are some of those downside risks of ERP systems and why, why would a company find any sort of problem or flaw with that model? Whether we're talking about SAP or Oracle or Microsoft or any of the big ERP software providers, what, what are some of the downside risks of those, those types of solutions? Well, what a great segue because um, it does sound too good to be true. And in fact, it is too good to be true. Uh, the problem with that, that model is that there are certain functions within an organization that really just aren't done well by uh, a blanket or uniform ERP system. And so the, uh, the, the, the next piece of this is really to go to a best of breed solution. And no enterprise or organization actually has, you know, complete um, uniform enterprise systems as legacy systems. They've got a whole lot of manufacturing execution systems, uh, supply chain systems, in healthcare, it's clinical systems that are unrelated to the core ERP, but have to function in order to make that business operate in a, uh, in a meaningful and valuable, valuable way, right? And so the, uh, the best of breed um, approach started taking over for uniform ERP because people had to find better ways of, of managing their business and being able to uh, manage the cost centers within their business as well. Um, right. And so that is, that is why that uniform ERP that seems to be the panacea is, is really not the, uh, the end game for most enterprise organizations out there. Yeah, even the ones that are leaning heavily into the idea of a single unified ERP system, and they, they strongly want a single unified ERP system, more yeah. often than not, they find that that just isn't going to get them all the way there. They're going to need some sort of bolt-ons or you know, ways to fill in some of the gaps of what that ERP system cannot do. So, right. um, you know, it, it, it's interesting that, you know, in, in, I always look at the ERP software industry and, and the tech space in general, the enterprise tech space in general, sort of a pendulum that swings back and forth. And you had, you know, I'd say in the early 2000s or up until the early 2000s, it seemed like the ERP software model was really gaining a lot of traction and a lot of momentum for reasons we've discussed here. But then what happened in the early 2000s is you had 
you mentioned best of breed. And, and just for those that may not understand that term, best of breed would be instead of one system that does everything within an organization, instead of doing that, you would go out by different functions and find different technologies that can handle that function really well. So you might go buy, you know, financial and core accounting system, but then you might go find another system that handles warehouse management, another one that handles CRM, HR, whatever. So that's the best of breed model. But what ended up happening in the early 2000s was you had two, uh, two upstart companies at the time that were not very well known, which were Salesforce and Workday. Um, they came along and sort of disrupted that ERP model. And Salesforce, for example, came along with a really good CRM solution that could do CRM better than a lot of ERP systems could. Same with Workday. Workday came along and provided an HR solution that did HCM, you know, keeping capital management and HR tech better than most ERP systems. So they kind of came in and attacked the vulnerabilities of that single ERP model and really started to chip away at, at uh, some of the some of the market share there. Do you see that trend continuing or do you, do you see, you know, beyond Workday, beyond Salesforce, do you see other upstart competitors or other alternatives that will sort of chip away at the ERP model? I do. Absolutely. The, um, you know, the, the interoperability of these systems, and you just described a, a scenario that is, is true in most cases. Uh, Workday is a great HCM solution. Um, the finance and supply chain functions, especially in healthcare, um, you know, very often handled by Infor, Oracle, uh, some of the traditional ERP systems, and you find you commonly find that pairing, uh, Workday and Infor or Oracle, in in many organizations. Um, UKG does a great job with workforce management, so you commonly find the applications under Kronos or UKG, uh, along with two enterprise systems. So you've got, in some cases, three or four. ERP systems, enterprise systems, bolt-ons, edge solutions that, that are all working together. Um, that used to be a real problem. And that used to be a, an integration challenge that was met by, you know, basically sitting and uh, coding with an internal IT organization, the, uh, the hardwiring between those, those applications and getting them to speak to one another. Um, there are new technologies out there, uh, Palantir, Snowflake, Databricks, that actually allow for an interoperation of those disparate applications and systems. Mm -hmm. And that really is changing the way that people bridge to a, a new ERP system, a new data and uh, digital transformation. Um, it also allows you to bring all of that information to, into a single uh, repository of data, a data lake, a data warehouse, and then mine that for actionable insights into the business overall. So, um, you know, and de depending on the industry and depending on the number of edge solutions or disparate ERP systems within an organization, bringing it together with that interoperability hub or um, as we call it, uh, mission control at the center, is uh, is a new way of, of bringing together that best of breed solution. Okay, we're here playing you a clip of Greg Benton and I from Third Stage Consulting chatting about is ERP software dying? We've got a lot more to cover, but we're gonna take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control.
aiming for transformation success, turn a third stage consulting group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 140. My name is Eric Kimberling. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. You can also subscribe at YouTube as well as audio podcast platforms throughout the world. But the easiest way to get to it is just to go to transformationgroundcontrol.com and you can see all the past episodes in video format as well as audio podcast. So we're here with Greg Benton talking about is ERP software dying? Let's jump back into the conversation. Back to the pendulum analogy, it seems like, you know, the pendulum had kind of swung towards single ERP systems maybe 20 years ago. And don't get me wrong, I think there's always going to be organizations, of course, that are going to want and will use single ERP systems. But now it seems like the pendulum swinging a little bit back toward the middle, maybe towards more of a either a hybrid or a best of breed approach or or something that um, is maybe lower risk too. I think that's an important thing to talk about is is the risk profile of these uh, different types of deployments. But real quickly, before I ask you a follow up question on that, I wanted to ask the audience real quick if you could just comment in the chat on if you were to decide right now what's what's the best answer. And I know this is a totally binary, unrealistic <laughs> question. <laughs> because usually it's somewhere in the middle, but I want to just get sort of a knee-jerk reaction from the audience here of what do you think? Single ERP systems, is that the future or is it more the best of breed interoperability sort of model that Greg's talking about here? What do you think the the trend is going to be uh, going forward in the future? I'd love to hear just what the audience's thoughts are on that. Um, but while they're commenting on that, I'd love to hear your thoughts, Greg, on, on sort of the risk profile of these different types of deployments, because it seems like a lot of organizations especially now with some of the forced migrations off of on-premise solutions and into cloud solutions, there's a lot of risk aversion, it seems like, in the marketplace right now to where organizations aren't necessarily excited or willing to invest tons of money and time into a high-risk endeavor like ripping out and replacing their entire back-end ERP system because a software vendor, vendor told them they had to. Um, so it's creating a you know sort of a risk aversion, it seems, in our client base and in, in the market in general. What, what do you... How do you how do you assess risk of these two different scenarios? Um, you know, in terms of cost benefit or just overall operational risk or uh, financial risk. You know, when you look at single ARP versus interoperability and best of breed, how do you compare the risk profile of those two? Well, uh, it, it's actually pretty easy to make a uh, a comparison between the two. Um, you've got to look at your total cost of ownership for the organization, and one of your favorite uh, one of your favorite words. It depends. Right. Um, is the way that we uh, we look at assessing this. But um, if you're looking at a uniform solution from a single ERP vendor and you're going going to be put the, putting that in place over a period of two and sometimes three years, um, the risk to the business is that you're going to be undergoing this, this major project. And traditionally, that's been pulling people out of their day jobs, putting them onto a project team and undergoing this immense uh, implementation of, of new technology, of new software. 
and then not doing a very good job of managing the, the change that's going on in the organization. So just think about uh, the idea of moving into a system that will give you early advantage and value. So if you can connect those disparate systems and look at the enterprise in a holistic manner going forward, put together your journey up front, you know, invest in a, uh, in a phase zero at the, the very be beginning or outset of a digital transformation and find out where you can get some um, immediate value out of the system by connecting those disparate uh, applications, systems, and, and data sources, right? And bring it into a, um, a data repository that will allow you to operate your existing business while you're, while you're uh, implementing this new enterprise software. Um, that is a much easier path to quantify in terms of value and return on investment than just going into a, uh, a wholesale uh, kind of lift and shift into a, a new enterprise solution. So I think um, getting back to it depends. You need, really need to look at what your ongoing operations are going to require and how many systems you are looking to replace with the, uh, with the new enterprise or digital transformation approach. Yeah, yeah, and I think, um you know, a lot of organizations too would be well served to really just sort of take a step back and not get too caught up in um, the term legacy or um, technology debt, technical debt. You know, that's a term that industry analysts and software vendors will use almost as though you've got a bunch of technical debt, therefore you need to upgrade your systems now. That's sort of the, the sales messaging that you hear from the industry a lot. And that could be true. It could be relevant for some organizations, but I think too often organizations don't look at what they've got. Sometimes if you've got a 10 year old ERP system it may not be the latest and greatest, but it may be working just fine. It may right. not be worth the risk of ripping out that entire system, spending a ton of money on it that may or may not deliver business value and, and going forward in that way. So I think organizations really just need to take a step back and really look at who they are and where they're headed and what their needs are and really use that as the guiding North star versus what the vendor sales messaging are, which, which oftentimes are in conflict with, with what your needs are. Um, here's an interesting, uh, comment from, from the audience here. Uh, this is from John Meadows on, on LinkedIn. He says, what is the key or, or what is key is that data accessibility is key for planning and reporting and ensuring that there's a control around reducing the silos of data that could exist. It is this fragmenting of information that leads to, to these issues. Um, so I thought that was a, a, a really interesting point. Um, and then John also had another follow on or a, a, another comment that I thought was really good which is I think some businesses, for some businesses, it's key to have best of breed solutions, but smaller orgs will not be able to cope with the total cost of ownership of a federated network of best of breed platforms. So there's room for both. It depends sure. basically is what, what he's saying. So, so it gets back to, it depends, right? Exactly. Yeah, that seems to be a, <laughs> that, that will probably be a recurring theme in this discussion here today, I would imagine. Um, but but that's, that's also pointing out why it's, it's never a great idea to go with a, uh, an enterprise solution that's made to be a blanket solution for every industry, every client. Um, right. You really have to look at industry solutions. Who else has done what we are planning on doing and how well has it worked? Um, right. that's, that's really a big part of that 
phase zero of really understanding your organization, the readiness for change, and what have others done that are best practices, right? And what is the return that they expected? And what was the return that they received? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And that, yeah, that's a key right there is just looking at your your business case and your your yeah. total cost of ownership estimates, your business benefits, the business value that you expect to get and really taking a quantitative objective view. I think that's really a key part of it and being realistic too in those assumptions around your, your business case is important. Um, another comment that came up here in the discussion from the audience, uh, actually two people brought this up, which is these are great points and something that's definitely worth diving into. Um, but Philippe on LinkedIn brings up the whole idea of platform thinking as it does just to give credit where credit is due here. Uh, Brian on LinkedIn said the same thing, platforms and composable ERP. Um, that's an interesting angle too, somewhat similar, but somewhat different to that interoperability model that you were talking about. Um, and when I think of platforms, I think of like, uh, you know, Salesforce has the force platform where you've got third party developers that are creating point solutions and specific tailored targeted solutions that do specific things, but it, it really creates this whole ecosystem of, of innovation and developers that are creating solutions on a common platform might be different systems. It might be different applications, but it's on the common platform. So there's some benefit of having that, that commonality there. What are your thoughts on this whole trend or this whole thought around uh, composable platforms and that sort of thing? Oh, I, I think uh, you pointed it out very well. Um, um, Salesforce service now, um, you know, there are many different platforms out there that are allowing for real innovation on top of and beside uh, ERP systems. So both legacy and new systems with low code, no code capabilities of really connecting them and um, managing specific functions within the organization that uh, in the past really required uh, customization of the software, right? So now you can configure the organization in a way that is, is kind of putting together Legos that um, <laughs> you, can, you can manage a discrete supply chain solution that you need with, a, um, with an integration for a, an overall, um, for instance, SAP deployment with some of the low code, no code options that are out there. Uh, Salesforce can integrate with many different systems um, just very easily through known APIs. And you can develop specific functionality around that platform that is going to allow you to uh, really replace some of the tribal knowledge within organizations that used to just, because we know our business so well, um, we're able to get value out of, uh, you know, uh, efficiencies that we create within the, the organization, innovation in, in product development, things like that can now be handled or managed with a lot of the, uh, the low code, no code uh, type of uh, platform development and integration. Yeah. Yeah. Great point. You know, we hadn't talked about the low code, no code uh, piece of it, uh, but that is a way that you can simplify the deployment of any sort of software, whether you're talking ERP or more of a, a best of breed composable ERP uh, sort of sort of model. Um, so it sounds like then there's there's alternatives, right? In, instead of looking at 
let's just say SAPS for HANA and Microsoft D365 and Oracle ERP Cloud and uh, NetSuite, Workday, or not Workday so much, but other than Workday, the other ones I mentioned are sort of your traditional ERP solutions, although Workday is becoming more of an ERP solution as they add financial capabilities and other sure. other systems, which, which is another interesting trend is you see sort of at the top of the market, you've got the big ERP providers like the ones I just mentioned, and then you've got sort of, the, I'll call them the mid-tier ones like the Salesforce and the Workdays that became prominent through their targeted best of breed models. But now Salesforce and Workday as two examples are expanding their capabilities to really compete more head to head with the, the ERP model, which I find super fascinating. It's sort of like they're moving upstream, big ERP vendors are trying to move downstream and they're kind of colliding in the middle there, uh, in the middle of the market. Um, what do you think, what, what are your predictions on where that battle goes or where that, where that, where that trend goes? Well, I think that uh, you pointed it out perfectly. The, uh, the big ERP vendors used to be known as um, where uh, the organizations where old ERP systems, or old systems went to die. So kind of a, a boneyard of disparate applications that were brought together under a single technology umbrella. And they've seen that, um, you know, rewriting those systems on a new technology foundation and expanding out into more and more of the edge solutions, as we used to call them, are what the big ERP systems are doing. Um, you know, the platforms at the bottom that, uh, that you talked about, uh, Salesforce, ServiceNow, um, even UKG is is kind of in that in that same category. I, I think they are colliding, um, and it's it's referring more and more of organizations that we're speaking to, to that, um, you know, best of breed model, uh, going back into let's let, um, UKG do what they do best. Um, they don't necessarily go into the, the financial applications or the supply chain side so much, but workforce management, they, they handle extremely well. Um, same with the, uh, you know, the workday piece of it even though they're expanding into finance and supply chain now as a full ERP solution, um, you know, their, their core value seems to be in HCM. So uh, I do see them colliding in the middle and, you know, organizations are going to have to decide upfront, you know, which direction they're going to go. What is the lowest risk for my organization in terms of, you know, the two and three year journey? And I want to make sure that I'm not going to be having an obsolete system by the time I get to the end of that two to three year journey in digital transformation. Um, and so I'm going to uh, lower my risk by working with, you know, the best solution that's out there for me. Um, and I, I, I think that's where that's been kind of lost with many of the big ERP systems really kind of pushing uh, organizations into more and more software coming from a single source rather than this kind of best of breed approach. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. We're here playing you a clip of Greg Benton and I from third stage consulting chatting about is ERP software dying? We've got a lot more to cover, but we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more transformation ground control.
If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 140. My name is Eric Kimberling. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. You can also subscribe at YouTube as well as audio podcast platforms throughout the world. But the easiest way to get to it is just to go to transformationgroundcontrol.com and you can see all the past episodes in video format as well as audio podcast. So we're here with Greg Benton talking about is ERP software dying? Let's jump back into the conversation. A couple comments I'll get to here real quickly. Uh, this is from Python Writer on YouTube. I just discovered this YouTube channel a few minutes ago by an ERP Next Review. Greetings from the Philippines. So thank you for joining today and glad you found the YouTube yeah. channel to join us here today. Um, but here's a question from Kyler, my podcast co-host here. Uh, really good question around how do you ensure all these applications are staying true or aligned with core business objectives? So regardless of whether you go single ERP or interoperability, best breed, platform focused approach, regardless of what path you're going down, how do you ensure that these applications are staying aligned with your business objectives? What are your thoughts? Well, I, I think uh, Eric and Kyler, that comes back to that original, original plan, right? Um, as an organization, from a, a leadership standpoint, you should definitely be putting, putting together the objectives of the organization for the next you know, one, two, three years, and then making sure that um, the uh, the expenditures are going to be realistic in terms of your overall budget and your total cost of ownership. And, you know, there's no such thing as full replacement. There's not a rip and replace strategy that's going to work well for organizations. You have uh, legacy systems that are going to need to be um, sunsetted. Um, so the sequence with which you go into the, the entire digital transformation is really important. And that's where it gets back to that. Let's make sure that we have relevant applications and systems that are going to run our business today. And three and five years from now, we want to make sure that we're sequencing or sunsetting or consolidating the applications that are, are currently running, you know, uh, important functions within the organization. So that's that's how you maintain that uh, that relevance of the the technology that is a part of your digital transformation is making sure that everything is in a complete plan um, going forward. Many organizations, surprisingly, don't do that planning process up front, and that's where they get into trouble. Is suddenly they run into a obsolescence or a decommission of a system and need to immediately replace something. And that's where you uh, you get into real trouble. Yeah, and to your point, if you're operating without a plan or you're operating 
in a reactive way because you have to do something now because you've you know you're going to lose support on your current system or the old system the legacy system is broken and isn't going to support your business for growth you know if you wait till those breaking points if you will that makes it a lot more tempting to just jump in and start making decisions without having a clear and deliberate strategy so the more you can get ahead of that i, I totally agree you, you want to have a deliberate plan and strategy that really weighs your options and looks at you know looks at the different paths you have makes a decision on going forward in a certain direction that is aligned with your business objectives back right. back to um kyler's question or, or point and most importantly you want to also recognize that there are risks to whatever path you're going down. So even if you choose the one that's best for you, there's going to be a downside risk. So if you go with the single ERP system, for example, the risk is that system doesn't give you all the capability you need. Should typically there's the the decision point of I might have to add additional systems to to bolt on to give me the full capability of what I need. So that's a risk. Or if I go best of breed, the risk there is now I end up with a hodgepodge of systems and now I've got to work more on the technical integration and make sure we've got single source of truth with data. Um, that sort of thing. So that's that's a risk. Not to say either one of those are terrible things that can't be overcome, but you just need to know that whatever path you go down or whatever decision you make, you're going to have a downside risk. None of these are silver bullet answers, and you've got to have a, a clear plan to help you get there. Um, what are some examples? I know you're a big proponent, and we as a company are, are big proponents of the whole sort of phase zero pre-implementation planning and that sort of thing. What What are some of the real high-level things that an organization should be thinking about and preparing for before they go down whatever path it is they're going to go down. Sure. Uh, you know, the, uh, the thing that we, we touched on earlier is really establishing the business case for where you need to go as an organization, right? So it's, it's establishing what is the cost for staying with some of our legacy systems? What is the, uh, what is the risk of staying with our legacy systems and what do we have to gain? from moving to a new ERP system, multiple platforms, um, you know, the uh, interoperability model. Um, should that be our strategy going forward or should be, we be looking at a uniform ERP system and go down that traditional model, model path? Establishing that, uh, that business plan up front is, uh, is critically important. And a lot of organizations don't do it. And then getting into a phase zero where before your systems integrator or your software vendors come into play, you really should be looking at uh, data cleansing, making sure that you've got an analytics platform that's going to support everything going forward, that you're going to have all of your information coming into one repository for that information and operate as a single business rather than operating in in silos or, or disparate technologies, um, the preparedness of the people for making all of the change that you're anticipating with that digital transformation, right? So organizational readiness, uh, data integrity up, up front, doing the data cleansing and the data migration planning for moving to a new system, and then doing a thoughtful and, um, you know, very, uh, efficient uh, software selection. So selection of those um, software elements, software vendors that are going to help you manage your business going forward. And then after that, pulling in the systems integrators and the team that's going to implement the systems that you've decided are, are going to be the best for your organization going forward. 
So it's following in those, you know, continual path moves that uh, that need to happen over a period of time before you get into the implementation itself. Yeah, yeah. No, that's what that's well said, and we've got uh, videos out on our on my and on third stages YouTube channel that that sort of dive into that phase zero implementation planning uh, phase in in more detail. Um, here's a comment that I'll, I'll ask the person if they don't mind to elaborate on, but this is from uh, Michael Martin on LinkedIn. He says that I'm very much against best of breed and a huge proponent of single platform. The downside is much less. So thank you for that, that feedback. Um, would love to hear your thoughts on what some of those downsides are or, or sort of what you see the tipping point being that, that, that makes you think that, that single platforms are, are materially better than, than best of breed. Um, what about, um, I know we've talked about, uh, we have talked about interoperability, but um, so I won't ask you that question again, but I did want to ask you a question around um, these forced cloud migrations. Um, I, I haven't seen in my career, um, and I'd be curious to see what you think here, Greg, but I don't, I don't recall seeing a time in my career where you had this sort of mass upgrade happening across the board, across different vendors to new cloud systems. So in other words, you have this, giant tidal wave or a, a massive movement in the industry where most of the big ERP vendors or a lot of the big ERP vendors are essentially forcing cu customers off the legacy on-prem systems into the cloud. And without us necessarily debating whether cloud is right or wrong or the best answer or, or how, how it's better than on-prem, I think it's fair to say that's just where the industry is going, right or wrong, that's that's where it's going. Sure. Um, so then the question becomes, how does how do you think these forced migrations or the forced sunsetting of these legacy products, how is that affecting um, customer trust? You know, that's something you and I have talked quite a bit about over the years. Well, I, I think that there is a, uh, a little bit of a lack of trust in the major ERP vendors because the, um, the move to the cloud is, is a mandate that's coming as a, as a result of the advantages of being in the cloud, right? So interconnectivity, uh, interoperability, um, consistency of the applications and the continual upgrades are all benefits of especially the multi-tenant cloud environment. Um, so everyone, everyone understands what the benefits might be. Uh, it's also a great benefit to the software vendors themselves because they're able to maintain one system to many clients rather than single systems, single upgrades, um, maintaining multiple versions of the software. They've got all of their people now focused on managing and maintaining and upgrading uh, a single version of the software. So it's much more efficient from them from a, from a financial standpoint. Um, but it has created a, uh, a mistrust. There are people that are running you know, older applications of Infor, SAP, um, to your point, everyone is upgrading and moving to the multi-tenant cloud environment and really rewritten technology foundations underneath these um, ERP systems. And, uh, you know, the, the forced march is, is really something that is costing organizations a lot of money in terms of the implementation in terms of the change management that goes on with new applications and new ways of running those applications and systems, um, you know that's that's creating a, a great mistrust in the marketplace. But you're right; it's it's a tidal wave of having to move. So over the next three to five years, 
80% of the organizations that are out there that are running legacy systems from major software vendors are going to have to move to the to the new um, the new ERP system uh, to the new cloud solution. Um, they are decommissioning the older applications and systems, and and again that that trust in somebody that you've worked with for 20 years is is really deteriorating. Yeah, I agree with that. It it's it's fascinating to me to watch actually because you know we've you and I have been we've worked for different organizations in in the technology enterprise technology space and you know you see the ebbs and flows of the industry but i've just haven't seen a time where there's so much skepticism and distrust of software vendors and i think a lot of it is because they're in many ways getting bullied customers are getting bullied by the software vendors into changing something that isn't just a this isn't just a technology investment or a technology upgrade that software vendors are essentially forcing on their customers they're they're forcing a high risk digital and business transformation that that organization may or may not be ready for, may or may not need to go through if it wasn't for the software vendors. And so that's part of, quite frankly, why why we as a company being independent, technology agnostic, that's part of why yeah. we're growing so fast, I think, is because of this distrust that's being created in the marketplace by the software vendors and by the system integrators, even the industry analysts that are out there pushing that same one-sided message. Um, people are seeing through it uh, and they're seeing through it pretty significantly. And uh, I'll be curious to see how it how it shakes out longer term, um, but uh, that that's unfortunate. And it, it actually, um, on a personal level, it is super irritating and makes me angry that, <laughs> that big, <laughs> not to get too personal, but that, that uh, big organizations are able to just force, you know, big Fortune 500, Fortune 1000, small and mid-sized companies. They're, these big tech companies are essentially forcing them into these high-risk propositions that have an 80% failure rate they're getting forced into that in a three to five year window that you've just described. And, you know, with that comes limited resources, a strain on resources to be able to do all this work all right. at once. Um, so it's, it's a really fascinating time and, and one that I've never seen in my career for sure. You know, just to, just to pile on to that just a little bit. So originally it was, it was passed off as a upgrade, right. Uh, right. For many Lifting of these organizations shift. and people have, have, learned or found out that uh, it's not an upgrade. In almost every single case, it's a new implementation of, an, of a new system. It requires a lot of change management. It requires you know, a, a whole new technology foundation that your people who were certified and really understand how the old ERP system worked now need to learn a whole new ERP system. So everyone is, is taking this opportunity to go out there and see what else is available. If, right. if you know, I was uh, working with a, uh, a single software vendor for 20 years and it was running my business just fine, but maybe there's somebody else out there or some combination of other systems out there that can run my business better, that can bring me greater value as a stakeholder, as a shareholder in my organization. And that's why everyone is now considering where am I going to go in this digital transformation? It's that digital transformation tidal wave that you talked about. So fascinating right. time. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, we're here playing you a clip of Greg Benton and I from Third Stage Consulting chatting about is ERP software dying? We've got a lot more to cover, but we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. Just tell me what you've got. If you are aiming for transformation success, 
turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 140. My name is Eric Kimberling. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. You can also subscribe at YouTube as well as audio podcast platforms throughout the world. But the easiest way to get to it is just to go to transformationgroundcontrol.com and you can see all the past episodes in video format as well as audio podcast. So we're here with Greg Benton talking about is ERP software dying? Let's jump back into the conversation. So we're getting some comments in the from the audience here, uh, particularly on LinkedIn. I would imagine. The, <laughs> so this is um, so the person uh, Michael on LinkedIn who who made the comment that single ERP is, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase, but he said single ERP is hands down better than best of breed. And then I asked the question, well, why? You know, why do you why do you think that? And so he he came back with some comments here, uh, one of which is let me pull it up. It is uh, the benefits of a single platform. You have reduced integrations, increased security, improved recording, improved reporting, ease of implementation, enablement of digital transformation. And then in another comment uh, from that same person, from Michael, he also says that um, ERPs are very mature and most of them satisfy a very large percentage of requirements. Um, I'm going to challenge a couple of those things. Um, I mean, first of all, I'd say ERP systems are becoming more mature. They, they've historically been mature. But the problem right now, to your point, Greg, is that you're, you're doing these big rewrites of the software, right? It's it, This isn't just an upgrade, like you said. This is a, a recreation of cloud versions of what had historically been, been done on-prem. So you look at, like, uh, for example, you look at SAP S4HANA. If you look at SAP S4HANA versus ECC6 or even more so R3, you know, the, the even older legacy product that were both on-prem originally, um, S4 HANA is a totally different platform, totally, you know, the HANA platforms is totally different. Yes, there's some similarities and there's some familiarity that comes along with it. So if you're an SAP consultant or an SAP person with experience with on-prem SAP products, you're going to, there's going to be some uh, efficiency and, and learning curve benefits uh, of staying with SAP. But to your point, Greg, they are largely rewrites. And if you think about the, how long cloud's been around, cloud hasn't been around that long. I mean, it, it, in terms of when most of these big software vendors started to make the shift to the cloud. It's only been, you know, a decade or less for most of these, for most of these organizations right. where, whereas they had decades to develop the on-premise solution and put all that R and D into it. So you still have a lot of catch up that's happening. I would argue in the space. And we see it in a lot of organizations that are in the midst of an implementation. Like for example, we have a, we have a client that's in the, on the tail end of a seven year Oracle EBS implementation. And in the middle of that implementation, Oracle tried to sort of, push them into the cloud ERP solution. And that client who's a manufacturing client looked at the capabilities of, of cloud ERP or Oracle ERP cloud and determined that that just didn't have the maturity, didn't have the capabilities that EBS had. 
So rather than getting caught up in whether or not they should be on prem or in the cloud, they looked at functionality. Can this software run our business? And they determined that the cloud version wasn't ready. And so they, they decided to keep deploying EBS, knowing that eventually they're probably going to have to upgrade anyway, but they're, they want to wait and be on the tail end of that adoption so that it gives Oracle time to develop and further develop those capabilities. So I'd say, I'd argue that yes, ERP systems are mature, but unless you're talking about say a NetSuite, for example, that was a legacy cloud solution from right. developed 20 years ago, 25 years ago, other than say a NetSuite who was born in the cloud, most of these other systems are now trying to catch up to their cloud, you know, their cloud versions to the on-premise version. Workday would be a, another example of a cloud native yep. application. Yep. Salesforce. Salesforce. Salesforce as well. So those guys, I'd say, yeah, you're right. Those those cloud solutions are are pretty mature. But look at SAP S4 HANA, Oracle ERP Cloud. Yes, they're getting more mature. In a couple of years, this comment will probably be obsolete. But as of right now, they're still trying to develop a lot of that same capability that they once had on-prem. They're still trying to develop that same robustness and diversity of uh, capability um, in the cloud. So I, I don't think we're quite there yet. So I think that's what's creating this opening of opportunities and alternatives is the fact that those systems are not quite ready for prime time in many cases. Um, what about, um, yeah, here's, here's a comment from, from Gassan on um, YouTube. He says, don't underestimate the amount of effort required for data migration. It's key to the success of cutover. And I think that's probably true regardless of what path you go down, right? Would you agree with that, Greg? It absolutely is. We uh, we have an, another client that uh, has been implementing for a very long time, and they really didn't establish a, um, a data migration path in the very beginning. Uh, didn't really put together the uh, the analytics um, uh, strategy that was going to be maintained for the organization all the way through the implementation. So now we are getting to the end of the implementation and go live. And we have four different disparate um, uh, reporting systems that are going to need to be used over a uniform ERP system. And it's, it's primarily because the vendor has changed strategies with regard to the, uh, the reporting and analytics. And there was never any upfront plan to, uh, to get from, you know, all these disparate data sources coming into, you know, a single on-premise system in the past to now a new system. And we're going to have to uh, develop a new strategy going forward for the analytics, um, business intelligence, um, enterprise planning going forward. So I think Gassan is exactly right. You have to make that a major part of your, your upfront strategy. Uh, again, that's going back to that strategy and phase zero approach to before you even embark on this in full, um, get all of your ducks in a row in, in terms of that piece of the, uh, the equation. Right. Yeah. Well, well said. Here's a comment. I've heard you say something very similar to this, Greg. So I think you might like this comment and leave it to uh, <laughs> Sam Graham, who's a regular contributor to our podcast, which just when I think I'm the one that's being disruptive, then Sam comes along and out disrupts me by asking something uh, very controversial. And, and it's hard to do. <laughs> right. That, that's why I like, I love having Sam on here. So Sam on LinkedIn says, if so many companies will be changing systems in the next couple of years, are there enough implementation consultants to go around or will systems be implemented by inexperienced consultants? I love that. Question. <laughs> uh, 
I, I love that comment. That is disruptive. Yeah. You know, but he's he's Sam is pointing out a, uh, a great point um, with everyone needing to make this move. Uh, you know, I refer to it as as really kind of the burnover period. Everyone's looking at digital transformation because they have to. Right. Gets back to that that whole trust issue with the uh, with the software vendors. But yeah, all of the implementation teams, all of the systems integrators, you know, third stage for sure, are all involved in digital transformation, are all involved in implementing new systems, software solutions, you know, digital transformation. So that is taking the best teams, that is taking the A team from many of the systems integrators and applying them to the people that, uh, the people in the organizations they get first in line. So now what's what's going to happen in two years when somebody who has, has said, well, I'll just wait and I'll find out, you know, I, I can change ERP systems or I can, you know, in midstream, we'll be able to, uh, to make the changes that are necessary to upgrade our systems, to implement new technology. What if, what if there aren't teams available to do that implementation? What if there aren't people available that really understand the new systems and can support the legacy systems. I mean, there's a lot of talk about backfill. So when you pull a, a person out of their day job to work on the project team, because you want your best subject matter experts to be working on the implementation of the new software and the new technology as you're going into an implementation, right? Um, how, do you, how do you backfill that individual with people that really know how to run the legacy system at the same time that you're having the A-team consultancy come in and do the implementation on the front end of the new system that's going into place. Um, that's creating a, a real crowd um, uh, migration to the new digital transformations in, in the next two to three years that, uh, that you described earlier, Eric. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And then, uh, you know, follow-up comment here from... Michael on LinkedIn, who's commenting on Sam's question and comment, is that systems are already being implemented by inexperienced consultants. So uh, <laughs> I, I tend to agree with that. And if that is true, which I, I think it is, um, it, and not, not, not across the board, of course, not 100% of implementation consultants are inexperienced, of course, but um, with this mass influx or this mass uh, migration that you're seeing of companies that are upgrading or implementing new systems all within a short window, that's putting pressure on, especially the big system integrators to hire more inexperienced people that can, they can do this, or they end up offshoring a lot of it too. A lot of the development gets offshored um, as well. Um, so I think that is a, a challenge, but having inexperienced consultants on projects has always been a challenge and a, a sort of a wart in, in the industry, I'd say, but I think that's something that's probably become even more, more prevalent now. It has. Yeah. Um, Let's see here. There's a lot of a lot of really good comments here. In fact, so many I'm having trouble sorting through them all. Um, <laughs> which usually I don't, but today I you know, I, I will say too that while you're while you're doing that, the uh, the program management piece is is really important on top of you know the the implementation. Uh, as we've been talking, you may have a number of different platforms, a number of different systems that you're implementing along the way. Um, mm -hmm. You know, managing that centrally and creating your own PMO or project management office, program management office, excuse me, 
uh, or, or having someone like third stage help you establish that is, is really key to making sure that you have the right people and the right um, uh, experience uh, doing the implementation work, doing the, the ongoing uh, uh, enterprise changes that need to happen within the organization. So change management, the technical architecture, the systems integration or implementation work as well, all under that PMO umbrella. Right. Yeah. Great point. Yeah. In, in viewing this as a program rather than just a technical project is really right. important because the program pulls in the technology or technologies that need to be deployed. But the program also pulls in other work streams like change management, data migration and process improvement, um, architecture, all that stuff. Um, so I think that's a great point. And making sure you've got a complete program in place is, is very important. That is something that we help our clients with. Yeah, you also mentioned change management. You, you mentioned this before too, and I forgot to ask you or follow up or make a follow up comment. When you talk about change management, that's also something I think is worth looking at when you're considering single ERP versus one of these other options we're talking about, whether it's interoperability, platform, best of breed or whatever. On the single ERP system, I would argue that there's more of a change management challenge because now you're sort of forcing the entire organization onto one platform that may or may not be aligned with the way you want to operate or have operated in the future. And so that tends to create more strain from a change management perspective, whereas a best of breed model, it's not that change management is easy, but it's easier because now with best of breed, you've gone out and you found the solution that best fits your needs for that one area versus one single system that by definition can't be everything to everyone. And so you're going to make compromises and trade-offs in that single ERP model, which is going to create change management issues. So what are your thoughts on that? How does, how does change management factor into, you know, these different paths that we're talking about here? I think that uh, you hit it, hit it on the head again. Um, a single ERP system, while if it's a replacement of something like uh, an, an Infor or Lawson legacy system going to Cloud Suite, is you're going to have a little bit less change in terms of the, the new applications, but nevertheless, you're going to have a whole lot of training, a whole lot of change management that's going to have to happen with the new applications. And I, I think that, um, you know, people tend to disregard that. So they think that it is something of an upgrade or, you know, that the change is going to be uh, fairly uniform and it's not. And when it's not, and there's the surprise that uh, it comes with discovery that, you know, the change is not going to be well managed within the organization. Um, suddenly that's something that has to be done after go live, right? and uh, continued op optimization. Whereas with best of breed, we shouldn't even call it best of breed. We should call it appropriate sequencing of technology. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> because you can still operate some of your legacy systems while you're implementing new technology components in you know, point solutions that are gonna work for the organization. So you may not necessarily change all of the, all of the uh, processes and have to go through all of the change management at one time for the new system. You can go through that in stages and plan for that very appropriately up front. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's well put. So even if you are going with that single ERP system model, um, you don't necessarily need to deploy it all at once. You can phase it. You can sort of break it up into bite-sized chunks and that sort of thing. 
um, for sure. Um, well, I guess to, just to wrap up, and it, it, there's so much here we haven't talked about. I feel like we, need, we definitely need a part two of this conversation, partly because there's so many questions that we didn't get to, get to here today. Um, but one sort of closing question I'll ask you, Greg, is, you know, as we think about these different options, you know, we've talked about some different paths you can take, whether it's single ARP systems or one of the other alternatives. What are what are some starting points that you would recommend to an organization and their project teams to really help define or assess these different paths and figure out which path is best for you? Because we're not here to promote one or the other, even though we are it's sort of a biased title to this uh, discussion, which is the death of ERP software as we know it. At the end of the day, ERP software is not going anywhere. It's going to be around for a long time. It's going to be a great Absolutely. option for a lot of organizations. Yeah. But these other alternatives are going to be great options for a lot of organizations. So how do you determine what path or which path is best for you? What are some early sort of um, simple takeaways we can leave the audience with to get started on that journey? Absolutely. Internally, develop that uh, program management office and lead that uh, charge for, you know, building the business plan. Uh, building the business case for moving it forward, having the executive level of the organization agree that we are going to sponsor this because it makes complete sense. So understand what your objectives are, measure those objectives all the way through, uh, enter into a phase zero where you really prepare the organization and understand the organization's preparedness for moving into this digital transformation and uh, again, getting back to measure and measure and measure all the way along. So um, establish governance up front as well. So it's, it's, it's all of that strategy in phase zero before you ever get to the decision about which system you're going to either maintain or go with as a new digital, digital transformation. Um, do the upfront work. You know, that's, that's the, uh, the main thing. All right, so that was a clip between Greg Benton from Third Stage Consulting and I from a few months ago talking about is ERP software dying? I'd love to hear your feedback, though. What are your thoughts? Do you think the ERP software market is dying? Is it going to look a lot like it is today? Is it going to look the same in 10 years? Are there going to be other big players? Will the big three of SAP, Oracle, and Microsoft, will those be the same big three vendors uh, in the future? I'd love to hear your feedback. So uh, drop in the comments what you think, and uh, maybe we'll get to the, some of those comments here in this this exact podcast. So. I want to thank uh, everyone for being here today. Thanks for listening in. Uh, another great episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, be sure to check out episodes from the past at transformationgroundcontrol.com. You can also subscribe on YouTube. And we stream to LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter every Wednesday. You can also subscribe on audio podcast platforms throughout the world uh, as well. And you can also just go to transformationgroundcontrol.com to view all the past episodes as well. So be sure to check it out there. So hope you have a great day. We look forward to seeing you next week on Transformation Ground Control. Take care.